I know a lot of people get excited about homebrew in D&D. I know I do. Present company seems to as well. That said, it's okay to allow only some types of homebrew into your game and not others. If you're comfortable with introducing things like items and monsters into your game, but not ready to handle things like homebrew classes or subclasses, that's okay. If you're not ready for homebrew creations in your game at all, that's all right too. Operate within your comfort zone and push your boundaries as you progress as a DM. Many people feel that D&D without homebrew isn't D&D, but that's simply not the case for everyone. Run your game in a way that makes you happy. It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on Dungeon Master Tips. I'm Adam, and with me today are Brian and Jeff. And this episode is called Homebrewing, Recipes for Arguments. We've previously covered a lot in our conversation on Dungeon Mastering. We've talked about prepping for both your campaign and your upcoming session, how to create villains and horror, how to utilize different campaign settings, where to steal inspiration from in pop culture, and what to do when a player character dies. We've gone over our insights on dealing with problem players, attacking the character sheet, and giving out non-standard rewards. And of course, there were those five episodes that broke down all the different condition effects, and a couple episodes on running mob monsters. You can find all of these episodes and our episode on running midweek content outside of a session on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and dozens of other podcast apps, or you can jump over to YouTube and dig into the entire playlist on Dungeon Master Tips that we've built there. The last time that we discussed homebrewing, Brian, Dan, and I discussed it by the broad strokes, but this week we're diving into some specifics. There's a lot of ground to cover and I want to jump into it, but before we do, Jeff, why don't you give us a little rundown about who you are, what your experience with tabletop games has been? All right. I go by at the.zombie.night on Instagram, and I'm a lifelong nerd and sci-fi fantasy reader that got into D&D pretty late. I read Dragonlance at maybe 10 or 12 years old and the Drizzt books not long after. I had friends that played in high school, but I was far too busy riding BMX and going to punk rock shows to notice at the time. Um, I didn't really ever get to play D&D until about five years ago, but I've only been playing and DMing regularly for about three years. Since then, it's been kind of an absorptive process for me, as most of my hobbies tend to be. I get information, I cram it into my head and just keep steamrolling forward. It's just kind of how I do. That sounds pretty accurate. I mean, I was a late bloomer in this too. I didn't start till I was in my early 20s. Um, and I mean, it's 15 years later now, but... I think that a lot of people discover this kind of around the college age, um, but uh, I think you uh, you started even later than that, huh? Yeah, about a decade after that. <laughs> Have you played any other tabletop games? Not notably. I mean, I would like to at some point, but I like D&D enough. I haven't really branched out much. Have you played any other editions or just 5th Ed? Just 5th. Okay, so you're a 5th Ed expert then. Yeah, I don't have any confusing backward lore screwing up the things that i know and confusing <laughs> me on old rules how dare you call out dan when he's not on an episode <laughs> all right enough about you jeff brian how are you what's going on in the world of the bearded nerd these days well everything's pretty good um nothing's on fire so that's always great uh we're doing great here in the podcast you know we just recently had an episode on action economy which was great because in my opinion i think action economy is one of those little known things that people don't focus on. So that was a good episode. It was fun recording. Um, had a couple of other episodes uh, with folks in the TikTok, in the D&D TikTok community. So that was really fun. Other than that, everything's that going like? well. Are they, are they different and weird? 
Well, this is the thing with TikTok. It's either very informative <laughs> yes. or it's very entertaining. Like it, yes. TikTok is just either one of those two. And this particular individual is both, which was a real pleasure and a treat to have them on. So, and actually, I believe they are from uh, Canada as well. So um, that that was really cool to just kind of interact and again love the internet and love this community. You can do so much with both. Really, someone else from Canada is it Frank? I have a one in eight chance of figuring out who it is. No, um, okay. there are I, not many of us up here. Well, it's actually so folks will be able to listen to this uh, soon, actually. Um, but it's with a dice cream sandwich. Oh yeah, those guys are actually local. Um, they're from Vancouver as well. So no kidding, that's awesome. We have uh, almost like crossed paths more than once, and we just never seem to be able to line it up. So those guys are funny. Well, Dice Cream Sandwich is an amazing DM, just a gem of a person. Go if you if you haven't already, go follow him on, uh, on social media. Great guy. Awesome. So let's uh, let's jump into it, shall we? Homebrewing. Mm. Um, if you are looking for why people homebrew, the general different kinds of homebrewing. Um, the common problems and issues that people have with homebrewing, the mistakes with rebalancing, or general tips on how to homebrew a world and when you're doing your world building. Listen to the last episode that covered this. It was episode 141 um, called uh, Homebrewing, aka DM DIY for D&D and RPGs. It's funnier when, when you look at it. So <clears throat> this episode, though, is going to focus on um, the specifics. So Let's uh let's roll before we get started. I've got some questions for you guys. I got a seven. Twelve. Eleven. Man, I am just this is not gonna go well for me. Okay, <laughs> so uh Jeff, you're up first. How often do you homebrew as a DM? Often. Usually every few sessions will feature some small measure of homebrewed creation, whether it's a monster or an item or just a little tweak here and there. Okay, Brian, how often do you do it? Pretty regularly, except for things that are in, you know, Monster Manual, DMG, you know, Player's Handbook, things like that. I will homebrew things of that nature or the campaign itself is completely homebrew. So quite often I'm homebrewing. Yeah, I operate exclusively in my own homebrew world. So mm -hmm. I'm always homebrewing NPCs, but Same. I've also started doing monsters and items and even spells and stuff <clears throat> as well. Um, I think that probably my sessions are... 50% homebrew mm -hmm. um, as far as the details go, but I try to operate strictly within the bounds of the 5e rules. So I don't often tweak rules. Uh, Jeff, when it comes to homebrewing, what gets you the most excited? Is it like items or lore, monsters, traps? Like what's the thing that gets you the most like worked up about? Items and monsters for sure. Um, I just like adding little pieces of flavor that makes the world feel more fleshed out and less like it came out of a pre-generated list. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a homebrew world, although I enjoyed doing that too. Mm -hmm. But even within a module, just adding slightly different monsters or slightly different, you know, NPC stat blocks that fit a niche that's just not there in the book or, you know, an item that's got a little bit more of my flavor. Um, I mostly kind of operate in the items and monsters realm of things. Does it um, freak you out when people take something like real and then they do it wrong? Like there's there's a difference between doing something like homebrewing it and then doing it wrong. Like when Dan tries to pronounce just about anything in the freaking monster manual. <laughs> I have a very mechanical mind. Um, I struggle not to cringe 
when people fabricate things from whole cloth on the spot with absolutely no respect whatsoever for getting like your ability scores and your modifiers and your bonuses to line up and make sense. Mm. Those things really make my skin crawl. But that's you just wanna, me. You want to exist within the boundaries of the fifth edition, you know, um, action economy, bounded accuracy, the basic staples. Right? Yeah, I like to respect that balance in a way that my players will never have to question whether or not I did something in a way that respects the system that we all agreed to operate in. Yeah, okay. You roll your eyes every time you see a... Uh... A uh, level forty-two monster, a CR forty-two monster, appear on uh on your Instagram feed. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, Brian, what about you? Items, lore, monsters, traps. What uh, what gets your blood pumping? Items most uh, generally, items will be the ones that I love to create, and that's just because I I see where y'all are coming from. But I will pose a a theory. I like creating something that works with my world because it's completely homebrew. I don't use modules. I don't use any of that. Um, and this campaign, or really this world has been continuously running for about five, six years now. I don't like to create things that don't make sense from a lore perspective. It might be an artifact level item, right? But very much like Tolkien, it might just be in a troll cave where players may find it or they may never. So I like creating homebrew items based upon my world and the lore that it pertains. Now, obviously, like from a mechanics perspective, I do like to make it balance, right? You're a plus one sword in my world, pretty rare, um, yeah. just because of what it can do that a plus one is, you know, pretty nice. But if it doesn't make sense in my world from a lore perspective, then I'm not going to even bother creating it. That was really the thing that we circled around. We danced around the idea, but we never really came out and focused on it in the last episode, um, was the idea that you have to have a reason why. It's all well and good to create an item or a new monster or a special dungeon or even a whole world, but there needs to be consistency. We did talk about consistency as far as balance goes, but consistency for the sake of lore is a major, major part of it. The moment that your players can no longer suspend their disbelief is the moment they start pulling out their phone and you've, you've lost them. It's over. They've ended up doing their own thing. And this has become a game on a table. It has become dice and math. And it's no longer the story, the collaborative storytelling that you're working on. I think I completely agree with, with what you're saying, Brian. And I think honestly, most, uh, most experienced DMs take that for granted. They, they just automatically say, well, I'm doing this because I, I want this. It's not the rule of cool. It's not, it's not the awesome wow factor. It is the new, um, new side of, of adding to their, their world and the story that they're um, presenting and whatnot. And then we all say, okay, yes, we, we're good with that. We know how to do that. Um, of course, you would know why you're building it. Let's uh, let's dig into the hardcore mechanics. I, I think, though, that for most people, you have to start with why it is the way it is and always keep an eye on that because that's also going to tell you if it's ridiculously overpowered. Do you guys have one piece of advice that you'd give a new home brewer? There's a lot that you can say, right? There's a lot of advice that one could give. Well, two episodes worth. <laughs> two ep exactly. <laughs> Um, the number one, well, first off, I, I guess this would be the most important thing for someone who is new to homebrewing. Have fun with it. This is a game as cheesy as it might sound. 
Like we're all in this to have fun together, have fun with it. Like if you're not having fun homebrewing things, whether it's a character or an item or a spell, whatever it may be, if you're not having fun with it, then just don't do it. Right. And I know that sounds a little mean to say, but it's truly, if, if you're not having fun with it, don't break your head over this. It's not worth it. <laughs> yeah. You, look, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I think that that is probably the most important thing. However, because I mean, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't fucking matter mm. if you are balanced against plus one or plus two items or yep. who's got how many actions in a round, if everybody's having fun. Correct. But that's the thing that new DMs seem to lose sight of when they're homebrewing. Everybody has to be having fun. Even just because you made a special monster that has 19 attacks in a round doesn't mean your players are going to love that and think it's cool. You may try to blow their socks off and, and do this really cool, awesome, here's this item. But if they don't give a shit, if they don't want to talk to that NPC that you created, if they don't want to investigate or become engaged in a different aspect of the world that you're excited about, that's okay. There'll be other opportunities. So just, just let it go. Just let it go. You gonna sing now? No, I don't have young kids. I, I, God, <laughs> Jeff, I swear to God, you and Dan, I'm just done with you. All right, what well, do you have a piece of advice for a new homebrewer? Well, uh, watch Frozen. <laughs> no, uh, no. If you're gonna pick one, it's gonna be either Moana or Lilo and Stitch. Let's be real here. Um, what I was gonna say was kind of going to counterpoint Brian a bit and agree with you is that yes, fun is important, and yes, learning how to rein yourself in is important. Um, I put personally a lot of effort into something that has been talked about on the podcast numerous times, which is the contract that a DM and their players make with each other, that trust that's built over time yeah. between players and the DM for the players to trust each other, for the players to trust the DM, for the DM to trust the players. And be aware as you hand out homebrew items or let a character learn a homebrew spell or let a bad guy use a homebrew spell or item or what have you. I tr I work very hard to make sure that what I'm doing doesn't violate that trust and doesn't push their ability to let me run with it to the point where they're not having fun anymore. I try to be hyper aware of that. And I think that that can help a lot is just kind of step back and think about is doing this, adding this, pushing the amount that my players trust me. Yeah. And that's a big factor, right? We've seen, I mean, even in Tasha's now, they've included a section about running a session zero. It's really come to the forefront. I mean, it was a popular thing amongst my friends that I was doing for a number of years, but I've seen it really blow up online, this idea of a session zero. And now Wizards of the Coast has um, kind of grabbed onto that idea about that trust, especially when you're doing a horror campaign, which is why it's in Tasha's. Um, but you know, now that we're getting later in the edition, I expect that we will see this in the DMG in every edition moving forward. The 100%. idea of, of trust and respect. I think um, a lot of it has to do with our culture slowly swinging around to understand consent. Yeah, and uh, look, huh, look, I was playing this game 15 years ago and it was all sweaty dudes with pimples in somebody's apartment. The, the place smelled like B.O. by the time that we left. Now, maybe that was just Dan, <laughs> but... We have really come around. You look, I mean, everybody's playing this game now. There's a a 17-year age difference, rather, um, between the players at my table. I've got um, LGBT players at my table. We've got people from different races and backgrounds and nationalities at my table. 
we've got like it's everywhere i i have more girls than guys playing most weeks um because the guys are unreliable i'm looking at you dave but um it is definitely not the same game and the same audience that it was before and that's fantastic because it's shifted and become more inclusive we have to consider everyone at the table when we're doing homebrewing things uh, look we could do a whole episode about this and we have done episodes about this in the past <laughs> um so let's uh let's push on forward with homebrewing um the first thing that i gotta say honestly when it comes to homebrewing is the dungeon master's guide has legitimate rules on how to do this and they're good oh yeah they are there for not only how to homebrew items uh, sidebar, if you want to homebrew sentient items, it's not with the other stuff at the end of the DMG. It's in the items section. Um, so that's kind of split up, but uh, it uh, does have rules for sentient items as well, but beyond just magic items, it has rules for making spells, rules for making monsters, and lots of them, and rules for making both um, classes and races. And the first question it asks is, why is it important to do this homebrewing in your world? which is exactly what we were just talking about. So I feel like we're really on the right page. We're starting off on the right foot here. The interesting thing about um, about homebrewing monsters, though, that I will say before we move on, because I, I know we're not going to talk about monsters for a while, but I just got to say, whatever you are doing as a DM, whenever you are doing your homebrewing um, for your world building or your monster creation or your special items and whatnot you have if you need permission you have my permission but you don't need anyone's permission remember you do not have the same constraints that the players do the players have very specific boundaries that they have to operate within you as a dungeon master do not how many different monster abilities exist out there that players will never get access to so when you're building an npc do not build it with character levels just build the npc you need it to be when you're building a spell list, it doesn't have to stay with arcane or divine. It's good to do that if you're trying to make a specific cleric, but if you just have that guy over there is, is uh, got a bunch of wands on him, it doesn't matter, do your thing. You don't have to follow any rules that the players um, have to follow. That's the wonderful thing about being a DM. It also means that you have the opportunity to get totally overpowered and, uh, and imbalanced, but that's what the last uh, homebrew episode was about. Or just drown oh. yourself in bullshit and making your own job more complicated on yourself. Well, and that's that's a big factor, right? Let's talk about homebrew characters for a minute. Um, people homebrew classes and races um, specifically because they feel like they are lacking something that's going to make it make sense in their world or because they're looking for some kind of cool, new, fun thing that they want to do. You want to be a gunslinger or uh, an ill-rigger pirate or a blood hunter. You're going to create these things and, and inject them. We're seeing a lot of anthropomorphs being added right now as far as the races go. Strixhaven has got uh, owl playable characters. So there's another thing with probably a fly speed. And these are just things that make sense in these settings, in these worlds. And so Wizards of the Coast makes it. They just do it the way that they want to do it. And you can too. There are rules, like I say, in the DMG. And we're not going to really break that down because I'm assuming that you guys can read um but let's i quit <laughs> uh let's get into why people um why people use them first of all let's consider if there's an, another way to get the trait or the feature that you're looking for you've decided that hey i wish my barbarian could do this and it can't so i'm going to homebrew it 
is there another way to get that trait or feature? If you want to sneak attack as a barbarian, don't replace your danger sense. Go take a level of rogue. There are already ways to get these things that are built, they're hard-baked into the way that um, that the edition is balanced. Sorry, I was going to say, and just because you want all the things from different classes to mix match onto one, um, part of the reason they want you to mix the things in the way that they want you to mix them is so that you don't, so that there is sacrifice, so that you have to compromise something to get something else. That's part of the game. Otherwise, why am I not just rolling a D20 and saying, if I roll anywhere between one and 20, I win the game, right? <laughs> you you have to have constraints in order to overcome, in order to get that sense of accomplishment. There's also the idea of um, addressing an issue. Hey, I know that, um, guys, I mean, we're going to talk about Rangers for a second. They <laughs> are um, not good. They are built uh, poorly, and they, they very much rely on their subclass to kind of pick up the slack. Now, I'm not going to talk about the Tasha's um, kind of ranger rewrite. We're, we've got an episode on that coming. But I do have to point out the fact that back when it was just the PHB, yeah, we had to homebrew. If you wanted to be a ranger, yes, you can have a wolf. You can just have a wolf. Take it, please. It just makes you a beast master and your shit sucks. You're a hunter and you don't have an animal companion. That seems a little weak. Right. So we were identifying the issues for balance. We were coming up with the answer, but we weren't complicating it. It was simple. It was sleek. And if it was too much, we would tone it down in a couple of sessions. And that's part of this session zero as well. Hey, if we want to introduce something new, that's cool. We will play test it and then rebalance it instead of, and I've had this at my table. Well, why doesn't it work this way? It worked like that last week. Right. And last week you talked your way out of a combat which shouldn't happen when you've got 73 giants enraged and knocking the walls down. You shouldn't be able to just say, hey guys, please stop. But you did, because the broken magic item. So we're we're limiting that now. You don't want your players to be butthurt. And that's one of the big issues and one of the big um, uh, consequences of fiddling too much with homebrewing. My general idea about this is underpower early and build later. If you get a plus one sword, well, everyone else has a plus two sword, but that's okay because you're a barbarian and you never really go down anyway. And you're always swinging. You have uh, all of these attacks or whatever it is. That's fine. You just got a plus one. But you know what? At level 13, it becomes a plus two and gains sentience. Then it's a really cool sword and everybody's excited about it and they want to play with it, right? But if it's level two or if it's a plus two and has sentience early and you bump it down to a plus one, and take away the personality, people are going to get upset. Sure. Another, another thing that I look at um, for myself is the subclasses. I want to compare and contrast the power of whatever homebrew subclass feature that I'm making against the other default subclass features. Um, now, what, what I mean by default subclass features is that every class has kind of the the most, um, like the paragon of the class. <laughs> the one they wrote first. <laughs> sorry the one they wrote first yeah right like it's clearly the bardiest of the bards and the rogiest of the rogues and the rangeriest of the rangers i'm gonna stop the barbarianiest <laughs> yeah um so the artificeriest <laughs> i'm gonna go through them i want to hear do you guys agree with me i'm gonna try to identify the default subclass for each one of the 13 classes um i think clearly for barbarian it's it's um, path of the totem and like 
bear totem specifically. Would you agree with that? I would disagree if Berserker wasn't trash. Yes. Thematically, Berserker is better. However, it's... It's lackluster. Yeah. Mechanically, it, it's punishing. It should be the default subclass, but it just isn't. Um, what about College of Lore for Bards? 100% agree. Brian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, what about Life Domain for Clerics? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I would I would say so. I'm gonna say Circle of the Moon for Druids. Yeah, I'd say yeah. Champion fighters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, battle masters, in my opinion, are more mechanically um, just more fun. Right, but champion is the archetype of I am a guy who does sword good. Yes, and it's going to give you all of the mechanical things that you want. This is the baseline. When you're balancing, the reason we're listing these is when you are trying to make a new fighter subclass, you mm-hmm. balance it against champion, not against battlemaster, right? You're going to balance against the way of the open hand for the monk. Um, I also, this is controversial, Dan disagrees, um, the Oath of Devotion for the Paladin. I can see it. Yeah, I can see it. I normally play an Oath of Conquest, but I but when you're, cre- and, and again, based upon my world, Oath of Conquest is what I am comparing it to because my world is very, my world's very different. But I would say for like regular D&D, devotion for sure, hands down. Yeah, I think devotion falls more in line with your archetype the of the lawful good paladin. Yeah, the paladin, what was it? The paladiness of yeah. the paladin? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The most paladin, paladiniest. Jesus, that's terrible. Okay, so... Um, like I said, Ranger's a weird, unique case because there there isn't one. The Hunter should be. Even the Beastmaster should be thematically. But man, it's rough. If you balance against the Hunter or the Beastmaster, you are coming in so far underpowered. It is it is ridiculous. You are doing yourself a disservice. You almost you know have to shoot like halfway between the Hunter and like the Gloomstalker and like shoot to be in between them. Yeah. Brian, At that you point, think? you might as well just create something completely different and base it off even what would it be like to be a fighter using only a bow, right? That That's how I would even create it. Hey, bow fighters and scout rogues are viable ranger options, in my opinion. Yep. I honestly think that they should have done a better job. Clearly, they should have for uh, for 5th edition. I think 5th um, edition ranger is, a, is the most noob trap of like yeah. D character classes noobs gravitate towards the ranger out of the php and don't realize what they've done to themselves until it's too late that's actually happened in my tuesday group i have a newer player that chose ranger and i was like are you sure and they were like yeah no this sounds good and i was like okay I'm just going to say this. If you're going to homebrew a ranger subclass, you should sit down with your DM ahead of time and look at Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and look at the optional rules and the bit of the rebuild there and build your base class first to find out where you're going to go for your subclass because there are a lot of customizable options now for ranger. Um, Some of it's a little OP. Most of it is underwhelming. So it's a hard balancing act. Um, But... Let's move on to the other noob trap, and that is uh, the rogue. Because <laughs> if, if you've never played D&D before and you want to sit in the corner and be dark and brooding, you pick up rogue. Now, most people love the idea of the assassin, but I honestly think thief is the better balance and the, and the better archetype as well. Well, thief's been there since the beginning. Yes. So 
I mean, they're, the, the class was thief, not rogue in the beginning. Yeah. So this has a thematic tone of if you're going to do anything, use thief to, to be that mirror or to be that kind of like pillar. Yeah. Um, for sorcerers, we have the draconic, the draconic bloodline. This is not my favorite thematically, but it is pretty well balanced. If you were trying to balance against the wild magic table, you're, you're in for a rough time. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I feel like draconic is the right answer. And um, I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts about sorcerers, but uh, but that just seems to be the the go to, the basic one. Um, when it comes to warlocks, you've got double duty to do here. You can homebrew a pact, at which point I would say pact of the tome is probably the default for balance. Pact of the blade is so popular, but it's popular because of uh, the min maxing you can do with it. Yeah. Pact of, pact of the tome seems to be the middle of the road. Um, like I like pact of the chain. I like pact of the talisman, which is the new one. They're neat and they're flavorful and they're fun. Pact of the tome is a better balance. And they're not, you know, specific um, niche uh, use cases, right? Yeah, and if you back up out of our D&D headspace that we're all so wrapped up in, and you say this person is a warlock, you think of a dude with a book, not a dude with an imp or a sword. Yeah, well, and let's talk about imps for a second, because the other side of the warlock is the patron, right? And honestly, I would be balancing against fiendish Great old one is neat, but it's got a couple of really overpowered stuff. And um, uh, honestly, the Archfey is uh, a wet fart uh, as far as power levels go. Thematically, really flavorful. It's just not well supported. At this point, the Fiend seems to be the best balanced. And again, thematic. When you think of a warlock, you think of a Satanist, you know, sitting in a basement summoning devils around a pentagram, right? So um, when it comes to Wizard... This one's hard. Do you guys have an idea of what the default wizard subclass is? I think if we stick to the PHB ones, they're they're all pretty much... Uh... The problem is that they're radically different, too. They look pretty much the same at face right. value. But when you get into it, each one has different strengths in weird ways. And I would just say, if you're homebrewing a new kind of wizard, why? There's like 15 <laughs> different subclasses. There are eight in the player's handbook. And then it seems like every new book gives us another three. Like there's so much. Yeah, what there. what new ground can you really cover? Yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I, I mean, I really even wouldn't. One person that I just spoke to had a conversation about necromancy. And that, that's going to be a totally different conversation because I think like a necromancer should be its own class not a yep. subclass of the wizard. And, and I can go, go into detail about that, but... <laughs> Never mind the fact that clerics make better necromancers anyway. Mechanically, yeah. I mean, it's... I mean, Based on 5th edition rules. Yeah, I get what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, for wizard, it's hard to pick one specifically. Anything wizard-like, honestly, because let's be honest, that <laughs> the wizard has so many different schools, you can... It's just, what do you want to do? If you want to homebrew something neat and cool for your wizard, make new spells. You don't need a new subclass. Yep. Um, and and then when it comes to the artificer, do you guys have any insights on this? I was Tech looking wizard. at them. That's what they but, are. Yeah, they're item wizards. But when you are trying to create a new subclass for an artificer, I'm kind of looking at at an armorer. I guess I only have experience with alchemists, so I don't really have a strong opinion. Yeah, they're very new. The alchemist seems to be very, um, very 
specific they 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 have a single role and they do it really well, but they don't really have a whole lot of strengths outside of that role. The same thing can be said for the artillerist. Like great in combat, really neat. You can ride a cannon around, sure. Then what? But outside of combat, what are you doing, right? So I look at the armor, which is the new one where you can make an Iron Man suit. And of course there's the, what was it? The battle? Uh, Battlesmith. Battlesmith. There we go. Thank you. The Battlesmith is pretty good. Is that That's the one where you get the steel defender, right? That one might honestly yeah. be the most centered I think so as well. So anyway, I, look, the, I would disagree. Just... Oh yeah, this is the thing. I think wizard and artist and artificer are going to have the same thematic problem, right? Where an artificer, what do you view as you know as the quote unquote normal artificer, right? What do you think of? You think of someone who tinkers and does all this like steampunky well, type thing, and and that's just it. They're missing the subclass in fifth edition called tinkerer yep. where you just make a whole bunch of single use items which is what everybody wants to do when they make the artificer in the first place yeah they just want someone who instead of paying money to go make something you're you're just making it yourself you want to be able to craft things um, you mean a forge clerk <laughs> well but that's the thing though i mean with an artificer and wizard i think if you're going to do any sort of homebrewing from a subclass subclass perspective you have to really think of the world you're in. So if you're world building and homebrewing that world and the lore that pertains to it, I think that's really the only way where you kind of move forward with it. That's a good point too, because your artificer is going to throw off your economy, right? If you're a low magic world and someone's playing an artificer, oh boy. So um, yeah, I would hazard against homebrewing wizard and I honestly talk to your DM before touching artificer or ranger clearly talk to your dm about this in the first place right but right. Th that's gonna have to be a hey let me buy you dinner i want to sit down and go through this can you look at my notes let's hash this out Bring i mean your books. if you want to homebrew a class and you're not running the campaign it should be a collaborative process between you and your dm from start to finish exactly right yeah, but yeah, so, right, some right. of this needs to be a little bit more uh in depth and uh has some asterisks beside it as well Look, when you, whenever you're creating a class, so let's move away from the subclasses and talk about things like Bloodhunter and, uh, and the Illrigger from Matt Colville. When you're building a whole class from the ground up, there are a couple of things that you need to keep in mind besides just the flavor, the lore, and this one cool quick draw mechanic from a gunslinger. You got to be aware of the fact that you could be stepping on other people's toes at the table. If you want to create some sort of... Um, a uh, person who summons creatures from the earth and you are summoning all of these elementals and pushing them up for look there's already a swarm keeper we already have summon elemental that maybe somebody's relying heavily upon now so you know that you can get these features in other ways maybe you can lean into it but make sure you're not stepping on the other subclasses toes I see a lot of that with the new releases too. The idea that, oh, this is just a fighter with warlock flavor. And look at this warlock with some sorcerer flavor. And I'm like, we don't we don't need to do this, guys. Not every class needs to have a healing capability. And yet here we are. Another thing to keep in mind is hit dice. The average amount of hit dice that a, or the average hit die rather, that a player character gets is a D8. D6 for squishy um, spellcasters d10 for beefy fighters only the barbarian gets a d12 and that's because he's designed to get punched in the balls over and over and over again i like it 
Um, there's also armor and weapon proficiencies um, versus other um, things that you can get. Remember, I always, when I build it, I always look at the idea that I wanted everyone to have martial and uh, martial weapons, and I want them to be proficient in heavy armor and shields. But as I start to give them other boons, I start to slowly peel that shit back. The more magical they are, the less access they get to these martial and armor um, uh, options until I find the appropriate balance. Right, like an, in, like an inverse slider, whereas if you add more on this one, it takes away on the other one to kind exactly. of even it out. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to tool proficiencies, that one's a little bit weird. There's a good list of uh, tools and kits in the player's handbook. They go into it a little bit more in Xanathar's, which is good. Give it a read before you go into it. Don't just say, forgery sounds cool. Ac actually look into it. What does it do? There's also saving throws and skills. If you're building a class, put the time and effort into this. Study the PHB. Figure out what these things are actually meant to do. Because I feel like a lot of people just kind of just kind of hand wave. Is can I tell if he's bleeding too badly? Can I roll in nature? No, that's medicine. I don't have I don't have any anything into medicine. I don't care. It's medicine, right? Be specific with which one of these skills that uh, that you want to your players to be using while they're playing this class. And then once you've built the class, you have to build a subclass and you need to know when to include the subclass features because they exist at different times. It's not always you get your subclass at level three, usually, but not always, right? And there are some things like, I think it's Sorcerer has a huge jump between subclass levels, whereas Fighters, like, man, you get something new all the time. When it comes to spell casting, you need to make a decision about whether or not they're going to be arcane or divine. Is it going to be a full caster or a half caster or one of these one third casters like a like a warlock is, which is another very strange or like an eldritch Artificer. knight, right? Uh, yeah, an arcane trickster. Um, is there a resource to manage? there? Because there should be. Rages, wild shapes, metamagics, channel divinities. Like Everything has a resource to manage. If your new class doesn't, you're doing a, a disservice. Maybe it's just relying on something that already exists, like Wizards relies on just spell slots, but know what that um, resource management is going to look like. Guys, let's grab our dice and roll because I have some kind of general questions. Um, I wanna go around the, the table a couple of times here. So let's let's roll. I got a 10. Four. A three. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah. All right, so do you guys have insider tips for homebrewing characters? My my big homebrewing tip, because I'm, I'm going first, is when you are sitting down and starting to go through all this, do your research ahead of time. Do not just go blindly into the idea of homebrewing a new ranger subclass, because I played a uh, Horizon Walker for three months last year. I know everything about rangers. No, do your research or it's going to get out of control quickly. Jeff, do you have a, a tip? Yeah, I think once you have kind of nailed down what your concept is that you want to build, whether it's a class or a subclass or a race, and you've started to write down your details and work through the process of play testing, be flexible and open to changing your homebrew outside of your original concept. Um, as you learn how it plays, it's you're probably not going to get it right the first time. You're probably going to have to go back and tweak things and fix things. And that also involves communication between player and dm so nobody's getting upset if the dm says no no that's that's too much we got to knock that back a little bit you will yeah. have to change it to tweak it to make it work correctly know that going in yeah brian what, what do you have for us 
Well, since I'm really huge on lore and the world that you've created, when you are homebrewing characters for your world, make sure that they fit with the lore. Don't just create something and it's a really cool concept, but then you say, okay, well, I don't know where to put this character because, you know, for example, let's say you create a, a, a character and you make this class and it's all about conquering, you know, very much like the oath of the or oath of conquest paladin. But then you realize that, wait a minute, none of the races in my, in my homebrew world are conquerors in, in their cultural, you know, creation. So think about that. Think about the narrative and think about the world and the lore as your homebrewing character so that you make sure that everything fits together nicely. Okay, let's uh, let's go around again because those, those were all good. Um, the, the next thing that I would say is, uh, is once you have exhausted your research and uh, kind of building on my last point, and you decided that you really want a cool uh, giant flavored wizard. You've got, you want to make a Goliath that's a spellcaster and you want him to, to tap into ancient giant magics or whatever. I'm just pulling this out of my ass now. Sit down and Google that shit. Someone else has already done this and you're going to be able to find it. They're going to obviously put it out there on social media or one of the forums. And then you're going to get to see how everybody else ripped it apart. And then oh, yeah. you'll have your opinions about was this a good idea or a bad idea and that's a good place to start as well because it's almost like getting um getting the play testing done by others ahead of time i will 100 back that up one of the first things i do when i am coming up with a homebrew idea for almost everything is go on DD beyond and look up the homebrew creations and find out all the other ways that people completely butchered the idea because there are no original ideas but look up the 15 different ways the concept you thought you had that was brand new has been completely butchered and completely twisted around and doesn't work and isn't balanced so that you don't make those mistakes when you write yours down. I, I do that every time. Brian, do you have another I agree. one? I'd agree, though. That's, that's something, in my opinion, that research is pivotal to your, to your homebrewing. If you do just a little bit of research, it's going to help you long term. Yeah, I've got a general rule when it comes to the doing a podcast, which is um, if you put in twice as much pre-production, then you only have to put in half as much post-production. Um, so, I mean, Dan and I have rearranged our little recording studio about a dozen times to get the best audio quality. And we have tested and tried uh, different methods of uh, killing the echo and the, the bounce back of sitting uh, in different chairs at different heights, uh, trying the different gain versus the different volume. Like we have done so many different things because it, man, I will spend 10 freaking hours trying to remaster an episode if we don't record it properly. And it's the same thing when you're doing homebrewing characters. You're going to sit there and say, I, I really like this one thing that I created and I'm going to just, just fiddle with it a bit. And you're going to tinker with it and tinker with it and tinker with it until there's nothing left that resembles either your original idea or you have completely lost the idea of scope. If you had just gone and read somebody else's work first, take the hour, and it may seem like an hour is a long time to do the research, but believe me, you're going to spend so much time in game arguing about mechanics. You're gonna, this hour is worth it. If Sink you, that time in early. If you think an hour worth of research before starting writing a class is a long time, 
you have no business writing a class. <laughs> That's True. fair. Uh, do you guys have a common mistake that people make when homebrewing characters? I mean, it, for me, it's, it's a balance. They want too much too quickly and they front load it. I think uh, people underestimate how complicated it is to actually make this stuff balanced and work correctly. Um, it's very easy to get things wrong in ways that you will not understand until you're way further down the line. If you jump into it and start writing a play test, you may mm -hmm. not find a problem until you're a year into a campaign if you don't do the work up front and fully grasp how complex these things can be. Yeah, Brian? I think one of the most common mistakes is that you, well, not you personally, but folks no, Adam, out there. definitely. At, yeah, I'm I'm calling you out. No, um, folks out there overthink it and over and and don't allow the actual writing part to be kind of organic. And what I mean by that is it's okay. And, I, and we said this earlier. It's okay to start really simple and then add on to it. And I think what we do as beginners is the opposite. We add a bunch of stuff because it's really cool, and then we kind of have to like take out things little by little as time progresses. Yeah. Yep. That goes right back to what Adam was saying earlier about, you know, starting underpowered and adding stuff in later. It's the same yep. concept. Yep. Um, one of the things I just thought of, um, if you're thinking you're going to want to homebrew classes or subclasses at some point, homebrewing races is really good practice because they're relatively short amounts of text. They're relatively small chunks of traits and features they're pretty easy to quickly compare against other established races within fifth edition, build a bunch of like character races and get a feel for that kind of balance and structure as like your pre-work. And there's a lot of material in both the Dungeon Master's Guide and Tasha's Guide or Tasha's Cauldron to Everything. Um, there's a lot of resources about how to customize and rework and build new races as well. So um, some of the work has already been done for you by Wizards of the Coast which is good. Do you guys have an idea for a class or subclass that doesn't exist? Something that you're interested in seeing? I think the one that I was thinking of actually would pair well with what Brian was mentioning earlier about a necromancer class, Yep. which is something that I, I think this would pair well and potentially maybe a subclass of that even. Uh, a few years ago, I started collaboration with a friend on a war witch caster class that actually utilizes the souls of the dead to make their magic work. I very quickly realized I wasn't experienced enough to get it the way I wanted it and make sure it was right. So I just kind of shelved it and maybe someday I'll go back to it. I like that. That sounds really cool. Harvesting souls and whatnot. I mean, do you, do you skew evil or no? I think if you're creative about writing it, you could make it so that it could be played either way, but it would take it's, some effort to it, get it right. Yeah, it skews evil the way that Assassin and your stock Warlock and your Necromancer already does, but it doesn't have to be. And it could very well be that gateway that a lot of people are looking for into playing a player character hag. Yeah. Brian, do you have anything? It would either be a necromancer, like I stated earlier, because the dread necromancer, I think in 3.5 was something, but in fifth edition, there's really not a necromancer, like a true blue, either necromancer with the different subclasses, like a, like someone who raises the dead or someone who causes fear or even someone who bestows like plagues, right? There isn't a necromancer in that pure form, but then kind of like what you were saying, Jeff, uh, a witch doctor would be really cool to see something of like, kind of not necessarily a warlock, but someone who deals in like voodoo, 
And maybe could you could use like the stealing of souls in that kind of like witchcraft uh, artwork or in that uh, framework rather. Those two would be really cool to see. I think the potential for the necromancer and the like hag war witch aspects of this could potentially be two subclasses of the same class if you could did it be. right. It could be. Either way, you're harnessing the dead for your magic. Very true. I got to say, the one thing that I am absolutely shocked that we did not get completely stock, and I know that you, you get it through a background, but there's no soldier fighter. Like the professional soldier? Yeah. Like you can get it through through Battlemaster or you can be, I was part of the cavalry and now I'm a uh, the cavalier or I would like, there's all sorts of different ways around. Like, oh, I was trained as a samurai to be a part of the, sure, great. But there's no like, you're part of the, you started off in a barracks. You did uh, two tours under the king and now here you are as a sellsword. And I know that that's kind of like built in. I'm just surprised we don't have it. Like as a, your stock PHB fighter subclass. I'm going to think about that for a while tonight after we're done with this, honestly. <laughs> That's going right? to bug me for a bit to figure out how to do that. That doesn't feel lesser than a champion or a cavalier. Right. And it, this didn't occur to me until I saw the cavalier and I'm like, oh, cool. We have someone for the cavalry. And I mean, of course there's, there's archers, right. I'm not including arcane archer, but anybody can pick up a bow. Right. But then we got the scout for the rogue. And I'm like, all right, we're getting everything else. The Battlemaster is kind of like a like a captain on the field. It's getting weird. It's weird that we don't have a Marine or like, like, it's weird that we don't have a cop, right? <laughs> I Yeah, that could be interesting. Um, I mean, make your arguments now about paladins, but it's weird that we don't have a <laughs> that we don't have a cop. But well, but the thing is, the paladin is, in my opinion, the paladin is not necessarily a cop, right? No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's just a lot of people like to play the paladin as the party police officer, right? Hey, rogue, put that back. Which is also, and I know this might be controversial, but um, I don't think that's good role playing. No, I 100% agree. You are 100% correct. That is playing lawful stupid. That's like that's like the part that's like the bard trying to seduce everything in its path. Yes, that is that is stereotypical 3.5 bullshit. And part of the reason why I'm glad that we don't have uh, that marriage to the alignment system anymore. I like alignments for monsters, not for players. I like them as something to think about, but not as a rigid construct for a player. Inspiration only, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so I put Jeff and Brian on mute for half a second here. I'm going to let them just stew in their own juices while I remind you guys really quickly about Manscaped.com. We talked a little bit about them at the beginning of last episode, and I wanted to give you guys a little reminder about their amazing products as well as the promo code that we have with them. Right now, it's it's a mimic 21 It's all one word, no apostrophe in the it's. It's just I-T-S-A-M-I-M-I-C-2-1. And it gets you 20% off all of the merchandise on their website, as well as free shipping. But you should also know that there is a Black Friday sale on Friday through till Monday. That's the Cyber Monday. So you are going to be able to get all of these products for 25% off your entire order plus free shipping. Last week we were all about these hilarious puns and jokes and ball trimming metaphors and evocative imagery but i'm just gonna cut to the chase these products are fantastic 
There is the Lawnmower 4.0, which has advanced skin safe technology as well as different guard lengths so that you can actually customize. You don't have to go all to nothing if you want a nice, just regular trim up. That's the answer. It came in a performance package 4.0, which is what the kit is called. So that comes with the Lawnmower 4.0, as well as the ball toner, which is that kind of special reviver, as well as the ball deodorant. Additionally with it, there's this beautiful leather carrying case. And my favorite thing about it was it. Dan and Terry were talking last week off mic about how they were so confused about why there would be a customized newspaper with multiple pages all about shaving your balls included in the kit. And then it dawned on both of them at roughly the same time, apparently, that you're supposed to lay this down between your feet to make cleanup a little bit easier. <laughs> it was really funny to watch them both have that moment of dawning realization. Anyway, there are a ton of amazing products at Manscaped.com. There's the Weed Whacker, which is for orifices and like your ears and your nose. There is <laughs> not all the orifices. Uh, there's also shears, um, which is a little kit of like uh, trimmers and clippers and whatnot. So that's not electric. It's uh, little handheld tools, including tweezers and things like that. There's a foot duster. There's cologne. There's two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. They've got their own body wash. Manscaped.com has everything you're looking for. They're so committed to your overall testicular health that they're actually partnered up with the Testicular Cancer Society. And every time that you make a purchase, you also have the opportunity to donate to the Testicular Cancer Society to help because they don't just love balls, they love saving balls too. So think about your balls. And not just yours, think about all the balls out there in the world. When it comes time for Christmas shopping and whatnot, it is your opportunity now to not just pamper some balls that are close to you, but also help save strangers' balls as well. Head over to manscaped.com. It'll be in our show notes below. And remember to use the promo code ITSAMIMIC21 to get 20% off and free shipping until December 15th. All right, so we've talked about homebrewing characters. Let's talk for a moment here about homebrewing spells. Now, clearly what we really want to talk about is homebrewing magic items, but I feel like we got to cover magic first before we get there. We got to eat our vegetables. So, <laughs> right? So um, people homebrew spells because honestly, there's one reason only. It's not that there's something lacking. It's that they want to do something cool, right? They want to be able to do that really, really awesome magic thing that they saw in a movie or they read in a book Anime. or they do in a Final Fantasy game. <laughs> and there's nothing that lets them do that in fifth edition. So they build their own spell. But there's more that goes into it than you may realize. I myself have made a few spells that have kind of blown up and not in the good fireball way. So let's get into some of the details. First and foremost, honestly, one of the most important things in my opinion is the name of the spell. And I know that that seems ridiculous, but I'm telling you now, if you are a character that is creating a spell in the world, fucking name it. it it's it's Bigby's hand, right? It's Mordenkainen's Magnificent Mansion. They all name it after themselves. Right, And it used to be in lore that things like Fly and Fireball used to be named, but then became so prolific, everyone started to use them. They started to go by their short name, and now we've forgotten who invented these spells way back when. So Adam, when are you rolling out your new spell that you were telling us about earlier, Adam's Legendary Tube Sock? Um, well, first of all, let me tell you about the uh, material components involved. You, uh, The first three rolls will get wet. 
So <laughs> you when when you're creating your spell, really think about naming it after your character and then giving it to your DM to use in future games as well. It's a bit of a fun legacy thing that you can do, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but the other thing to think about too is your spell school. Which spell school does this fall under? And you may be surprised when you look at the actual lists of the spell schools because a lot of the healing stuff is in necromancy for some reason. And there's evocation spells, or what you would think is evocation, everywhere, right? So take a look around at which spell school it would fall into because it may have some interesting synergy with different wizards. Then, of course, there's the parts of the spell. Casting time is important. Is it an action? a bonus action or a reaction or does it take a minute or 10 minutes or an hour i've seen some people talk about rituals that take an entire day to be able to do and you must always have a dedicated spellcaster making arcana checks in order to do it and that sounds cool for a super powered level four spell the longer it takes the more impressive it has to be no one wants to spend a week concentrating and getting levels of exhaustion so they can identify a magic item. Then you get to worry about range and area of effect. These two things are very, very, very important. There is a little bit of info in one of the sidebars in the DMG actually about, um, I think there's a, a small chart that tells you at a certain level, this is how much uh, damage you should be doing unless it's hitting multiple targets and then it should be doing this much damage and it kind of breaks it down for what your average should be um so that's that's important when it comes to area of effect keep in mind too that if you've got 120 feet on a spell that you can cast and it has an area of effect of 40 feet you in theory are hitting people 155 feet away so you're not limited to that 120 feet so keep that in mind when you're building it add the area of effect the radius to the range there's different spell components i almost always just say yes to everything the uh, must have somatic it must have verbal and it must have a material component and i usually make that material component weird but not impossible to get just because i want there to be some flavor to casting this but if i'm creating it if i'm homebrewing it it shouldn't be restrictive and different and weird unless it's supposed to be it, it has to use one of the 10 time crystals Sure. Okay. This isn't really a spell. I'm just making a plot device now, right? But if I'm just making an average spell, I want a cool level two whatever because I want to do a new different kind of lightning damage. It and shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. You know, difficult for people to cast it. And honestly, if you look at the material components for a lot of the spells in the PHB, a lot of them are really funny. If you get the meta joke they're playing, yeah. don't be afraid to make it humorous. Absolutely. And don't be afraid to, to lean into like the weird herbalism side of things as well. Make those herbalism kits matter. Make your druids have something to do. There's also the concept of how long a spell lasts, if it's instantaneous, if it's going to be up for a minute, are you going to make people re-roll saves at the end of every round or at the beginning of every round? Are you going to be concentrating as well? Um, remember, if there's an ongoing effect, you really should think about adding concentration, especially if it's revolving around damage or adding a condition effect to someone. If you want that person over there to fall prone and not be able to get up again, then you should be, in theory, concentrating on it, especially if it's a low-level spell. You have to think about divine versus the arcane, which classes are going to get access to this, right? If you make this really cool healing spell, 
uh, the arcane trickster may not get it. Which pillar is affected and how intensely? For example, if I'm going to come up with this awesome combat spell that's going to just stop in its tracks any combat encounter because it does a shit ton of damage and it stuns everybody, that's level nine. But if I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I know exactly where all of the magical traps are and how to disarm them. Man, that just that also kills an encounter, but it's probably a level four or five, somewhere around there. You think about the different aspects of how um, of the ease of um, passing encounters, and because honestly, spells and spell slots are a large part of the resource management. And so you should be focused on when your players are going to be casting this, how much of a get out of jail free card is it? Because that's what spells are. That's all that they are. I know what the enemy is doing because I cast scry. I blew up three guys so we can move through this room a little bit faster. I now can fly so I can get up that cliff. You're just getting to the end of the challenge of the difficulty faster using magic, depending on the pillar and depending on how quickly or easily or or simply even that you can do that. That may change what level of the spell that, that this is. You got to think about damage and uh, conditions as well. And by damage, I don't mean how many D12s, but I mean like, are you doing lightning or psychic? You should really sit down and look at how many man, how many monsters have resistances or vulnerabilities or immunities to damage or condition effects. It is always a pain in the ass for every DM the first time that they are sitting there DMing elves to cast sleep, and your your care your player looks at you and goes, no, 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 it doesn't work. Like what? Why? Now imagine your players doing that. Well, they've got this really cool fire spell, but they're in the nine hells, so nothing happens. They're going to be pissed. So really think about who this is going to affect and how often in your campaign. Of course, think about what saves are going to be applied as in, should this be a constitution save, a will save, a, a charisma save, or an intelligence save? Like There are different saves that you can uh, force the monsters and the enemies to have to roll? Does it make sense for the flavor of the text? And what kind of enemies should you be hitting with these? For example, if I'm going to do 17d20 psychic damage to somebody, I'm probably not going to make it an intelligence check because anybody that can, that can ward off that much damage is probably super high intelligence anyway and just going to negate it. So if I want it to be effective, I may make it a charisma or even a constitution. Like there are different ways of balancing these uh, saves and choosing the right one for the right kind of effect against the right kind of creature is a bit of an art form. Uh, it, it takes a while to look at it. And of course, scaling guys, that's the last thing that I, that I really focus on is, you know, cantrips, most of them, a lot of them anyway, they scale up as time goes on. And a lot of people have been talking about how to get the non-scaling cantrips to also scale and homebrew. If you want your minor image to become more powerful as you go, it's something to think about. There's no reason why it shouldn't, considering that Firebolt does, and it's a cantrip too. Just how does it get more powerful? So when you are looking at all of these and you're trying to balance, you got to figure out what level this spell is going to be because you're not going to hand out, you know, wish or a, a minor wish at level one. So how where do you start with that? They've got some rules in the DMG, but magic spells are a little bit crazy. They can do just about anything. You have to compare and contrast it with the average spell at that level. And so flipping through is uh, the player's handbook and going through the spell list there. Uh, even um, Xanathar's is good as well. 
this is going to give you an idea of what's available for clerics at this level. But I'm telling you now, there are four spells that are just overpowered at the level that they're at. Um, and it's for tradition reasons more than anything else. And you can probably ignore them if you're trying to come up with balance. Fireball, Counterspell, and Fly all happen way too early. They're all level three, and that's nuts. They should all be, for what they can do, they should all be higher level, especially in fifth edition. They're that low because everybody wants them and will always take them, and they're important parts of D&D. Then the last one, of course, is Wish, which should be a, what, level 11 spell, but no such thing exists because it is a crazy bullshit spell. That is way overpowered and it just lets you get away with just about anything. When it comes to uh, to building spells as well, you got to think about synergies that it's going to have with other spells or with other um, effects. For example, if you've got terrain-based exploration stuff and you make it a divine um, spell and it's part of the divine spell casting list, I mean, your druids and rangers are clearly going to get that and there may be some synergy that they use for it as well which is, I mean, on the nose, it's on point. That's not a bad thing. But if you're going to start to see synergies, maybe you bump it up a level or you make those material components a little bit more difficult or it costs a full minute in order to cast it. And be prepared for out-of-the-box thinking from your players once they get access to it. And that's okay. It is okay because the magic is supposed to be out-of-the-box thinking. But if they start to abuse it and rely only on the new spell, it may be time to neuter it or give it to the bad guys. So, one more time, guys. Let's grab our dice. Right. We like the clickety-clack. Let's roll. I got a 13. 19. A 6. <laughs> oh, Brian. That's how it goes. Have you been um, last this whole episode? No, I went last the first round. Oh, that's right. Okay. Um, Jeff, you, you're first again. What are your insider tips for homebrewing spells? Well, since you just mentioned give it to the bad guys, I'll start with that a little bit. If you're going to homebrew a spell for a bad guy, and I mean a spell, not a trait, not a like NPC monster trait, a spell specifically, consider... Something that uses a spell slot. Yeah. Consider the potential for the PCs to learn it. Um, I'm not saying you have to lay it in their laps, but if they see an an enemy spellcaster cast a spell and they ask about it and they want to do the legwork to get it, even if that means coming up with a quest or whatever, consider when you make it specifically for a bad guy. If you're going to give access to the spell to your players, just, you know, it's not necessarily fair to just make a bad guy only spell. I mean, you could do it, but think about it. Think about it so that if you know it's going to be a bad guy only spell, that you're, you know, really high level enemies, really high level spells, you know, just something to Something to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, I agree. Okay, here's the one thing that I see a lot, um, especially as people start to talk about things like psionics. Um, when when you're looking at building a spell, do not create a new kind of spell damage <laughs> because nothing is going to be immune or, or vulnerable or resistant. You are just doing yourself a disservice. I can't um, do 66 fuck you damage? Nope. I mean... Not without one of Dan's patented pieces of, of furniture. Um, <laughs> there are there are a specific set of, of um, ideas that, that Wizards of the Coast has given us when it comes to which creature types are um, 
revolve around which kind of damage and why and what spells, uh, what levels the spells are and the cost of them and whatnot. Yes, we're starting to see some weird bloat with psychic damage and force damage now, but don't don't just rely on it because it's going to get past a lot of this stuff and it's fun to, to bypass monster um, immunities. Really think about the long-term balance. Sure, you may be using radiant damage. You want to make it a radiant spell because you're fighting undead today. But if this is an angel campaign, you've just neutered yourself. Or if you are going to be heading down to the nine hells later, you're going to be, you know, floating on easy mode. Really do think about what you're doing in a long-term campaign when you build this spell. Brian, do you have any insights? Something similar to what you just said about long about the long-term effects or thinking in the long-term when you're homebrewing spells, please think about the long-term effects and what it does to balance, right? Mm-hmm. If you are pulling from the divine or the arcane plane of magic, think of the long-term effects. You obviously wish, right? That's it's almost, I would almost even say it's a broken spell. Yeah, but something always like- Always has been. Yeah, it always has been. And, and think of something like divine smite. Divine smite is- Okay, it's pre- it's not necessarily a spell, it's an, an ability, which again, it kind of produces a little bit of balance, right? If you're going to create something of that nature, pull from other areas, right? And think of how those spells um, affect long-term play, long-term um, lore, narrative, whatever, fill in the blank. But think of the long-term and how it's going to bring balance. If you create something that, yeah, it sounds really cool, when they cast it, but then it has an effect on the HP of the player or uh, not the player, hopefully not the player um, of the, <laughs> of the character that might be a cool uh, plot hook in the future, right? Where, why does this character um, have a lowered HP quote unquote, every time they cast a spell, maybe that's a cool plot hook that you all get to adventure and kind of go into think of the long term. Honestly, that is some of the uh, some of the best advice for homebrewing in general. Think of the long term. You can branch that out as well into think about the impact that this spell existing will have on your yep. world. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jeff, do you have a favorite homebrew spell that you've made? I don't really have a lot of prior experience with homebrewing spells. I have had a few ideas that I shelved. Um, I have something percolating in the back of my mind at the moment, but not enough to really want to share yet yes spoken like a dm um honestly i came up with one when i discovered that there was a a hole in what i wanted from uh from fifth edition i created a homebrew mechanic which is um i was doing a kind of grittier than normal campaign and i wanted my players to get scars but how do you do that when healing is so available and so the idea was that every time you're knocked unconscious you gain a permanent scar oh cool but I mean, do you really want to walk around looking like a freaking extra from The Walking Dead by level two, right? Like you you go unconscious at low levels, right? Everybody shouldn't be totally fucked up for the entire campaign. So I wanted to give them the ability to get around it. But Greater Restoration is a level five spell. And that's the first time where you get to actually fix these long-term conditions that, that people get. So I saw that there was lesser restoration, which doesn't do it, and greater restoration. I created restoration, just your stock ability. And I, it's level four. 
It's an abjuration because the other ones are. It's casting time is a minute because I wanted it to be kind of like a ritual. Um, and uh, and it is uh, for bards, clerics, and druids. I took the uh, the material components and I used a fraction of the material components that Greater Restoration has. And the idea here is that it is essentially lesser restoration plus um, you can reduce the target's exhaustion level by one or end one of the following effects on the target. Um, which was blinded, deafened, paralyzed, or poison. You can restore any ability score damage equal to the caster level. So that's really good up when you're fighting against, you know, um, shadows and wraiths and these things that are they're doing that horrible con damage. I think it's specters that does it. Or sorry, and you can heal any superficial or surface level scars. Oh, nice. Suddenly, like this is not an overpowered spell. As a matter of fact, it's a little underpowered for level four, but my players really wanted it because they wanted it to be pretty again. And that meant that the druid in the party had to take this as one of their known spells do you have this completed i do do you have it written up on dnd beyond i do not if you get a chance i want to link to that uh yeah you know what i will flip you the details and you can put it up i do not have dnd beyond because Works i for am me. a pen and paper purist so um brian do you have a, a homebrew spell that you're super excited and passionate about I do, but unfortunately, right now I can't reveal it because my the audience members who are my players, <laughs> I'm trying to keep it secret because that uh, basically I'm working with a warlock, and there's mm -hmm. something that we're trying to create to really fit his backstory, and it's very kind of like Call of Cthulhu like. So it, we're almost bridging two different systems here to create a spell that would work for fifth edition, but kind of have roots in Call of Cthulhu. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone who would, who would be listening, but I can say this, basically what it's doing is that at higher levels, and this is kind of going with the class itself. The concept is what would happen if you would break the, the plane between the material world that they're in. And this is like geared for level 20. So, and I'm not saying that they're level 20 right now, but we are planning for that long-term. Hence the reason I've been kind of preaching about long-term. And the concept is, can we bring creatures, monsters that serve the same uh, patron into a fight, even if it's for a minute? Mm. So we're trying to bring a little bit of that Call of Cthulhu, because I believe in Call of Cthulhu, there is something specifically to it. I have to double check it, but again, we're kind of making this weird kit bash of a spell. Yeah, no, that's right. cool. I like that. One of the things that we don't see from uh, previous editions, which we used to see a lot, is the uh, idea that it costs you um, in order to cast a spell. Like, hey, you can do this crazy, just fucking over the top amount of necromantic damage at level three. You're doing 10d10 necromantic damage, but you cannot heal until you spend a week resting. Or... Uh, it gives you three levels of exhaustion or your constitution modifier gets a negative two to it. The only right? spells I can think of that really do that are going to be resurrection and true resurrection off the top of my yeah. head. There yeah. used to be a lot of things Which... that were like that. And I mean, guys, that's what hit dice are for. Yeah. Right. Start working on that. It uses up three of your hit dice that you cannot use on the next short rest. Or even permanent right if if and that's yeah. kind of where this spell this homebrew spell is leaning towards it's going to have a permanent effect on this on this character which in late game tracks yep yeah. 
And that's where, and that's why I'm just like, man, I really want to open up all about it. But then I'm thinking from a player perspective, it wouldn't be, I don't have their consent or permission to like talk about it in full yet. Cause I just messaged them on discord and I was like, Hey, um, you know, can we talk about this later in the future? And until it's like set in stone, cause it's a weekly game and it's going to be most likely streamed as well. So to give Adam a point to pivot on here, uh, your description, your lead up to your restoration spell, Adam, uh, yeah. just inspired me to write a magic item later. Okay. Nice. The magic eraser. The magic eraser. I like that. <laughs> that that's okay. So that's one of the magic items that I've created in the past was um uh what was a floating chalk. And the idea is that the chalk, the piece of chalk doesn't float, but you can write on the air and it permanently Ooh. stays there. Oh, I just like the idea cool of someone scrubbing with... abrasive foam on their scars and they go away. <laughs> See, when I think about that floating chalk, I'm like, okay, you can like write some like wards and glyphs if you're in a battle and you can just do some crazy stuff like that. Yeah, I, I I really like it. My players have not latched onto it, but that seems to be what happens with magic items when you homebrew it. Let's uh, let's jump into them. So, people homebrew magic items probably more than anything else. Um, homebrew monsters are pretty common, but homebrew items is the most common thing that you see, especially in social media. Um, normally, there are just a handful of different parts of an item, and that is the name, clearly. Um, and the descriptive word that goes with it, like if you if you read, it'll say like sword or item or uh, kit or something like that, right? And then you get the rarity, and uh, the rarity does not matter at face value when the item is handed out. However, it is a guide for a dungeon master. So there are six different levels of rarity, common, uncommon, rare, very rare, legendary, and artifact. Common means that just about anybody will see one of these in their lives. Uncommon means that everybody's heard about it. And rare means that people may have heard about it, but they may not believe it. Or it might be generational that they, my great-grandfather had access to this one time, right? It's, it's not even like you can go three times over to get it. Um, very rare means that it's almost um, like whispered about. And legendary means that it's mythical. It is just mythical. An artifact is literally an item that like a god or an arch lich has created. The average person shouldn't know about it. This is the level of like, like Call of Cthulhu um, uh, secret items and shit that the average person would go absolutely crazy to get. The, the one ring is an artifact. The average person should not get their hands on that. I would also I would say, I would sorry. say this is probably true of a lightsaber as well, right? The average person should not get their hands on a lightsaber. I would, what were you going to say, Jeff? So yeah, sorry. It's hard to gauge audible cues for when you're going to stop talking without seeing your mouth moving. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say was I would strongly consider legendary and artifact level items. Um, if you're going to have more than one of these in your world, think about it three times. These yeah. this level of rarity under most if not almost all circumstances, it should be the only one of those in existence. And that's, yeah, that's kind of the other thing. The moment that you get past very rare, I would even say for very rare, for the most part, I mean, wizards and artificers and, you know, high-level clerics have access to that, but not the average person. Legendary and artifact, this is the hand of Vecna. Like, these things have a specific name. It is not the, the 
cloak of billowing, right? This is this is an actual thing. There's probably somebody's name attached to it. This is the rod of seven parts. The this holy avenger. Yeah. Exactly. This is black razor, right? Like these artifacts, these legendary pieces are so powerful that if you hand one out to every one of your players, I don't know, man, just fight the Tarrasque. Like I would also else. say that it depends on your game because if you're playing a, a, a high fantasy, you know, a lot of magic, I would even recommend that legendaries and artifact type um, items would even would be even more rare, right? So if you think a legendary if this is going to be a legendary item in a high fantasy world, make it an artifact. And if it's an artifact level, make it a god tier, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's because, again, going back to the whole uh, the plus one sword, rarity means something in the long term. A plus one sword for a level three barbarian is great. But when it's a level 12 or 13 barbarian, a, a plus one sword can do some crazy shit. Or even a level five or a level six fighter, it can do some crazy shit. You're absolutely right. And you got to think about the tiers. And that's that was uh, kind of my next note here for myself was you have to look whether you're tier one, two, three or four, or you're trying to swing outside of that up to the legendary tiers, uh, which is uh, creatures above CR 20. Right. If you're gonna go fight one of these these demon lords, you're gonna go take on Orcus. Orcus literally carries the wand of Orcus. It is a legendary artifact. Like this thing, like is ridiculously powerful. Your players will need something to counter it. But remember, if you add these items, they will rely on these items. If you add something common, they will use it sometimes. But if you give them something legendary, that means it's powerful enough that they will never not use that sword. So I, I think that we've already covered the uniqueness, which was the next thing. Like know exactly how rare, how um, whether or not this is a one of a kind, who makes them? You don't have to take notes. Just give it half a thought. Is this only available from dwarves? And if so, where's your nearest dwarven kingdom? And it's if just, it's not on this continent, how common is it to run across here? It's just one dwarf named Steve. <laughs> Damn it, Steve. Um, think about the price too, right? How much would it cost to replicate something like a potion of healing or a scroll of fireball or a plus three mace? And then yeah, that's important. Really and important. Then also think about the cost, right? And there's a difference between price and cost. So yes. the idea of you're, you're making something, but also what are they going to try to sell it for? And they should not be able to sell it to every single general store. If it's a magic item, who buys magical items? And why? One of the best things I ever did was I gave uh, an NPC to my party where they would just unload to a collector all of the magic items they didn't want. And I sat there and I wrote them down, I wrote them down, I wrote them down for like 10 levels and then made that guy the big bad evil guy using all the items they gave him. Nice. So think about what it, it's going to mean to get rid of these things. Honestly, I don't track weight. I don't track encumbrance at all. But when it comes to magic items... I keep a real close eye on, on not just attunement, which limits how much they have, but also what are the items that they're carrying? Well, let's say the party grows to love this individual and you have just sold them or given them all these magic items. 
what happens when someone has all the magic items from across the world from dungeons lost you become a huge target so guess what you're now going to be that npc that you love is now has a target and a price on their head Never so mind. what did you as a character just walking down the street with all this crazy expensive shit yeah now you're a target you you have a permanent hit on you at all times you think you have that you know just because it may it doesn't cost you or the price of it right doesn't matter to you because you have all this gold that you're not spending wink wink my party every party yeah every party (laughs) true what's the what at what cost right do you do you have a vault that is that protects against magic so that the magic aura doesn't call to the original owner aka a la the one ring like you have like a chevy vault (laughs) well more of more of like is it lead you know like a lead vault that protects against magic and all this other stuff i think they're using lithium now lead's old tech (laughs) Uh, yeah it's it's the old additions in me i'm sorry um But yeah, but same, but similar principle though, right? You know, what is the cost when you create this homebrew item and are you making it? And again, this all might be just might depend if you're running like an Eberron S game, maybe you're fine because everything's magic. If you're running more of a song of ice and fire style where magic is kind of limited and rare on the continent, congratulations, you played yourself as, as a famous rapper just once said. (laughs) <laughs> yeah look i i i agree with you one of my favorite npcs that i made was uh the enemy called the archmage and he was a mundane thief uh and he had zero magical powers but he did get a circlet of infinite attunement and then he ran around stealing all of the magic items he could get his hands on that's a terrifying magic item isn't it yeah my my players knew that he was just loaded up on magic items with high attunement costs, but for some reason they never put together that one of the items was letting him do this. So I was so scared that they were going to figure out that it was this circlet and they were going to use it, but they never did it. Even when they killed him, they didn't take it from him. They just let it, they looted his body, didn't roll high in the investigation check, got the wands and the swords and then moved on. Like, well, that's going to come back to bite them in the ass later. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, who 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 finds that, right? You know, who... I'm the most the most powerful kobold that will ever <laughs> exist. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that that brings me to then is the idea of the pillars. Which pillar, whether it's combat, exploration, or role-playing, uh, is this magic item going to focus on? My favorite thing to do is to give it to exploration pillar. Um, because even the really powerful stuff, as long as you're not saying like uh, the players can always fly forever at a hundred feet around, like if you don't go nuts, but like the powerful stuff, like you don't leave footprints, that's insane. That's powerful. However, it's not game breaking. Not really. I can work around that as a DM. I try to avoid words like um, always and never and all or none Um, these absolutes, these terms that are absolutes, because if I do that, I will end up with an uh, unstoppable force hitting an immovable object. And now I've got to make a call in the moment, which is going to piss off the players one way or the other. So I try to to have it be um, either very general 
or very specific what it can do. And I follow the rule that FitEd follows, which is um, if there's ever a specific rule that counters a general rule, the specific rule wins. So um, if all of uh, all of your uh, kobolds have dark vision, right? And all kobolds just have dark vision and that's a thing they have. And then you have a specific rogue ability that lets them say, hey, you know what? Uh, you cannot be uh, seen in darkness. That's very specific. So it trumps the kobolds can't see them. It just trumps the kobolds dark vision. So when I'm making homebrew items, on magic items and spells, I keep that in mind as well. And when in doubt, I like to hand out things to exploration or social, although social can get a bit um, mind controlly if you're not careful. The other thing that I like to do to keep things limited is um, I watch how often they get to use it. A lot of recharges on a short rest or a long rest, or there's only three um, potions inside this potion making kit that have already been built. There's no way to make more, or this is a wand that specifically only has one charge left in it. So you're a level two party with one instance of disintegrate. So it's okay to hand these kind of overpowered items out if you limit their usage. And that's something that fifth ed does pretty well actually with the magic items that they've uh, written out for us. You have an idea of depending on the tier that you're in, which items are going to be the most useful based on the number of uses that you're gonna be able to get out of them. Anything that is perpetually, consistently activated is going to be far more rare and it's gonna be kind of disruptive to your game. And then of course there are intelligent items. And guys, do you have any thoughts about intelligent items? Cause I tend to avoid them like the plague. I do too, but my one exception will come up in a couple minutes. Brian, any I thoughts? avoid them unless it's a narrative plot or a, a narrative or story plot. Yeah, honestly, anytime that I'm adding an intelligent item, I have to treat it like I've just added an NPC with zero agency. Which is annoying. Yeah. It's it's very annoying because the, invariably you get a Dan who then turns to the item and says, hey, what do you know about this kind of monster? You just that's you just gave yourself more homework as a DM is what you did. It's just it's not worth it to me to do to it in the long again, long term, not worth it for me. Might as well just you know, give, might as well just make an NPC. I will say this. I I do. Um, so the campaign that I'm running right now has six players. One of them is uh, living on the other side of the country and does not actually sit in on sessions, except when she's in town. So the other five move forward with their story and she moves off in a parallel story elsewhere in the world. And they communicate through midweek content. I gave her an intelligent item to help her with lore and understanding of the situation around her because she doesn't really have other people giving her options and suggestions on a course of action, but she also knows this intelligent item is prone to being wrong sometimes and often only has partial information or what seems like a good suggestion at the time, but without knowing everything. I don't mind intelligent items when it comes to solo one-on-one, -on -one, or even if you only have two players, I don't mind doing that. Hell, we tend to flush them out with an extra NPC or two anyway when there's not enough players around the table. Um, so I don't mind it being an intelligent item, especially because I don't have to worry about that item then throwing my combat balance off, right? Do you guys, I know you're both excited about... Um, homebrewing items let's roll initiative and uh i'd like to know what your your overall thoughts are for homebrewing specifically magic items six <laughs> i got a natural one a three 
Really? Oh, Brian, come on. That was <laughs> we were trying to hand that to you. I know, but you know what? These dice were doing they they were they betrayed me. <laughs> Jess. <Jasper. laughs> what is what is one tip for new DMs that you have about homebrewing magical items? All right, when it comes to rarity and assigning rarity to an item, um, I would think about this from two potential different directions. One, uh, you assign a rarity at the beginning and then make the item fit that. Or you just make a cool item and then figure out where it fits in the rarity scale after the fact. These are both valid methods with pros and cons, depending on the way you think and operate as a DM and a home brewer or just a person. But it doesn't have to be something you think about all the way through. If it's easier for you to just go, I'm going to make some cool shit. And then afterwards go, okay, where does this fit? Or, you know, sometimes I like to homebrew with limitations to help me define a thing. So I'll say, I'm going to make this cool idea. I want it to be uncommon. How do I make that work? And both of those methods are valid. I completely agree with that. Brian, do you have anything to add? I would, I would actually write it from the perspective or rather homebrew the item from the perspective of who you're trying to capture or um, who you're trying to represent, right? So for example, if you want to make a homebrew item that is dwarven inspired, think about what the dwarves in your world do, what their culture is like, what their mindset is like, because that's going to also implement and affect the rarity, right? So for a dwarf, for a dwarf maybe this thing is rare or legendary. Maybe it's because it's something culturally about their god or their deity rather, um, Maybe it's just from a legendary hero. The rest of the world is going to view that as an even, uh, it's going to be even rarer for them because one, it's not their culture. Two, it's not their legendary hero, but it's probably something that is really, really cool. Or maybe they're just not interested in it. So I would just think about it from the perspective of is the homebrew item specific or from a particular perspective? And then build from there. I like that. Um, one of the things that uh, that I always think about anytime that I homebrew an item is uh, depending on the rarity of it, do the players know what it does? I never, ever, ever give them the title of whatever it is. It's always a, a gnarled stick that's burned on one end. And they've learned that if it's burned on one end, that means it's magic. It shoots out that, that end. This is a <laughs> wand, right? Like I never, ever, ever give them the idea of, hey, there's there's this shield that gives you a plus three to AC. No, 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 no. There's a shield with Dwarven script on it. And that's it. I make them go use the spell slots or take the time to do a ritual to identify, or they got to go pay someone in town to identify it for them. I make the identification process of what this does a little bit more fun and interesting. And I use my reward system at the end of every session. A lot of people hand out inspiration. Um, I would do that for people that use the item without knowing what it does and just hope and pray because one out of every 10 or 12 items has a downside. So I have a good um, example of that, which you will absolutely love, Adam. Sure. Uh, in my Curse of Strahd campaign, uh, I gave my players your wand of kerfuckery. <laughs> And the party Kensai monk grabbed it and just started shooting the shit off the side of a Vistani encampment at random until he figured out what it did. Yay. Which was absolutely fantastic. Um, my favorite one that I've handed out, uh, which was absolutely wonderful, 
was um, the I, I handed out a clearly a uh, body piercing. This is a titanium spike. It's one inch long, and you just put it through your earlobe or your nose or whatever it is, and that's it. However, there's a faint gold spiral that winds around the piercing that glows once you've done it. So they know that it's magical and they've seen it, but they don't know what it's doing. And they, they pulled it off of a goblin. And when you wear it, it doesn't take an, an attunement. You can just gain the ability to rage. Or if you're a barbarian, huh. you gain an additional rage by expending one hit dice worth of hit points. Ooh, nice. However... They didn't realize that that's off your maximum HP, not your current HP. And it does reset at dawn, but oh my God. <laughs> nice. Yep. Yep. I had a, a fighter just hammer that into his ear. He did not have his ear pierced, hammered it in, took two points of damage, went, all right, let's do this. Rage. And so he was a barbarian for a couple of rounds. That's uh -oh. that's really similar to, some, to an item that I actually made. That's really funny. Oh, yeah? I, mm -hmm. I try to do that all the time where I I create these items that are yes, but um, mm -hmm. you get to do this really cool thing. But I'm going to warn you right now, it ages you by a year every time you use it. Yeah, that is nothing. That's awesome for an elf. Don't give it to your goblin. Your goblin will be dead tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Or kobold. Yeah. So there are I like I try to give upsides and downsides. Um, to to all of these uh, these items, and I love not letting them know what it does. When they do figure it out, I want them to go, "Oh, that's really neat. Do we want that?" Huh. And then when they say they want it, but they don't want to use it because it's too scary and it goes in the bag of holding, then I'm going to uh, start having thieves go after the bags of holding. Oh, hey, I wanted to ask you guys. So, bag of holding, you can only get the stuff from within it if you know what it is right? You have to know what the object is that you're reaching for, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a maximum amount of size. Do you guys ever have full bags of holding just around your world where no one knows what's in it? Anytime but, I give out but it's full. anytime I give out a magical container like that, there's always going to be some amount of random shit in it. And that for me is one of the fun parts because I don't really like giving out magic uh, bags of holding. I don't really like the removal of thought that comes with collecting random shit. I like making them kind of consider, not, not encumbrance, but consider how much crap that they have just for mm -hmm. the sake of my own sick amusement. But if I'm going to give you a magical container like that, one of the fun parts for me is coming up with random bullshit to put in it when you find it. Now, when you come up with random bullshit, you're, you tend to skew on the underpowered side of things, right? Oh yeah, fully. It's usually annoying stuff, to be honest. Like things that you... <laughs> Really, like, what the fuck do I need 75 spoons for? <laughs> but if you melt it down, you can make a silver weapon. Right. So not completely useless, just maybe slightly annoying. All right. Jeff, what's the best homebrew item that you've ever made? Um, so this is why I kind of held off on the uh, intelligent item thing, because the only intelligent item I've ever made is this one. And it's a sick and twisted creation called the Tarask Great Axe. Uh oh. Uh, in centuries past, the legendary Tarask was subdued by polymorphing it into a weapon of great power. Can and I just say that I'm? Can I just say I'm disappointed that you didn't call it the Tarax? I mean, you could easily name it whatever, but um, the name that I've given gives the point across. So basically, <laughs> uh, the Great Axe itself is the polymorphed Tarask, which is aware of itself and tries to fight its bonds. 
the containment clearly cannot last forever, but until that day, it's a plus three great axe with magic resistance, spell reflection, see the siege weapon trait. It gives you the ability to use frightful presence, but it can communicate its emotions to you. And the personality is basically just unending hunger and trying to impress this hunger onto the wielder, wanting to consume and escape. And if you roll a natural one on an attack roll, and then in, you have to immediately roll another d20. If you roll a second natural one, it immediately turns back into the Tarasque. That's not fair because that's a one in 400 chance of doing that. And you will swing that axe more than 400 times. Well, I mean, it's also a plus three sentient, like highly powerful. This is something you get at level 18. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not giving this to a level 13 party. I'm giving this in very late game just to see how much you want to risk it. Just to fuck with my players a little bit. You know it's probably going to go bad. It's just a matter of when. You need to hand this out at level one just to set a tone. That could be real fun. <laughs> Brian, what's your favorite homebrew item you've ever made? Do you mind if I say two of them? Yeah, oh, no. two. Actually, you know what? We'll, we'll do a second round. What, yeah, yeah. What's okay. your first? Well, I was going to say, so the first one is a consumable. It's called the mushroom of the berserker. And essentially what it is, is my salute sex tape, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Got him. Um, My whole, my, my, the solution to it was it would be really cool if the players had the ability of other classes. Well, as a historian and uh, really just someone who likes to mess with players, I created the mushroom of the berserker, which basically when you consume it, you have the ability to go into a barbarian's rage. But after the rage ends, again, just kind of everything that's normal. In this case, once you consume it and the rage ends, you go, you gain that level of exhaustion and that's pretty much it. But it's a one-time use. So instead of it being a class feature, it's just something you can consume. Now, if you consume it too often, then that's when things start to get really tricky where you start to hallucinate. You start to really see like, okay, you go into rages unwillingly because you're eating this plant, essentially this fungus to an extent where you're, you think that you see the enemy all around you. So it, it, that's probably one of my favorite items that I've created so far. Actually, I'll just say that's my favorite. I won't even share the second one just because I love the aspect of, Hey, what happens when you actually abuse of this thing? Do you, and, and is it worth abusing? Well, that's pretty fun because I also had one of these, if you abuse it, you'll regret it items. I also love that you made a, a literal magic mushroom. That always makes me laugh whenever that happens. I'm just saying. I mean, <laughs> you know, not that I was inspired by any particular uh, video game or anything. <clears throat> uh, um. So my my favorite magic item that I've ever made was a doorknob. They just found a doorknob that you could press against the wall and or against any door. And if you turned the doorknob at a door, it would automatically unlock no matter what. No matter what magical bonds or wardings, this was an, an artifact level legendary item that would automatically unlock. Uh, but it only had a maximum of 100 uses and they found it in the midst of being used and they didn't know what, like how many uses were left in it. Ooh. If you put it against the wall, it would open up a magical cupboard and you could put stuff in it. You could open up again later, but you never knew if you would lose the shit in there because of this, this um, the limited number of charges left. 
Nice. I like that. Well, well, it gets better because one of the players identified it and only gave what I've said, only gave that information to the other players. And he kept the rest to himself. And the rest is that if you end up using the last charge, this knob turns into a goblin. The <laughs> goblin is pale, elderly, naked, yep. and pathetic, <laughs> and it hates the world around it. Existence is suffering. <laughs> it has been conscious the entire time it's been a doorknob, and it's existed for the last 300,000 years. Uh, and, so, it's, and its name, Adam? It, it, this is the knob goblin. <laughs> So the knob goblin also is cursed to die at dusk every day and be reborn screaming into existence at dawn the next day and will show up within 10 feet of the person who turns the doorknob for the last time every day until the curse is broken screaming. and the knob goblin can die. Dang. That's fucking awesome. This thing tormented terry for i'm not kidding like half a fucking campaign every time that they were like tiptoeing around at dusk this this freaking goblin would suddenly have a boulder fall out of nowhere and squish it every time that he was trying to like like get his, his eight hours rest in he would get woken up by this screaming goblin suddenly just poofing into existence in this like body horror suddenly like showing up and screaming terry fucking hated this and everybody else loved it they thought it was a riot i can hear terry's voice in my head just going can you fucking not yeah <laughs> exactly i laughed so hard every single time this knob goblin showed up but the knob goblin also hates life and didn't want to get killed in a brutal way so he was always looking for a passive way to kill himself before dusk so he was constantly drowning himself in puddles or throwing himself downstairs or jumping off the nearest like he knew the nicest ways to die because he was always experiencing the worst ones so he was also suicidal which terry was he would just turn to the to the knob goblin at like three minutes after dawn say can i cut your head off make it quick and just like they were leaving knob goblin corpses all over the place Do the corpses remain oh yeah <laughs> yep so they actually had a uh, goblin disposal issue in the kingdom for a little while there. Now I'm imagining what happens if like some random cleric casts speak with dead or tries to resurrect these goblin corpses while the knob goblin is alive somewhere else. Well, I'm, I'm really hoping, look, I know for a fact that Terry, Megan and Dave will not listen to this episode. And I don't know if Dan or I are going to, uh, to edit it, but I think it's going to be me. So I don't mind saying that um, the knob goblin still very much exists. There are literally tens of thousands of corpses, and they are going up against high-powered necromancy powers in this campaign, and they haven't put the two to two together yet. So, Fuck. so that's, that's my favorite homebrew item. Um, Jeff, do you have another one? Yeah, and I'll actually just go back to we were talking about before the random shit I like to put in uh, magical dimensional containers. I gave a friend of mine the top hat of holding, which requires a little bit of bookkeeping by the DM for this to work correctly. But uh, you as a player don't know what's in the hat at first. Um, it has a finite number of spaces for things. It's not about volume. It's about it can fit a hundred things maximum. Oh, yeah. It has a magic word. So if you put your hand in the hat and say the magic word, whatever that ends up being, you pull out 
something off the table of things that happen to be in the hat. You don't get huh. to pick. You just pull something off the chart that DM keeps that has all the shit that's in the hat. And I preloaded it with like 25 items, a maximum of 100. And so he was fascinated at first by pulling out random shit just to see what was in the thing. He pulled one of them, of course, has to be a dead rabbit. Let's be real. Of course, yeah. Um, and then he learned very quickly to his dismay that it is a very bad idea to put your healing potions in the hat. <laughs> because then the only way to get them out is to take every single fucking thing out of the hat until you get one. Oh my God, that's infuriating. I love it. It was a lot. That, but, that's pretty but dope, that's, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, that, that's so much fun. Brian, do you have another one? The only one that I would like to actually share, and this is something from um, my Ko-Fi page, that I, and I also share it on Instagram, but it's called, it was Libra's Mall or Libra's Hammer. And it's, you know, it does, you know, kind of normal, like a 1d8 bludgeoning damage. But what I decided to do was create this mechanic where it was judgment and mercy, right? Libra being the balance. So like on a critical hit, the mall deals some extra radiant damage on a critical miss. It does damage to yourself or to to a random creature, whether it's the party or whether or whether an ally or an enemy and mercy. So kind of like the opposite, the opposite, it would heal someone or it would heal, you know, someone in your party or heal someone um, that you don't choose, depending on the role. I love it because in my opinion, Libra being that balance should be balanced to everything. It is not going to be, you know, if the goddess or the impersonation or embodiment of balance is truly out to balance things, it doesn't matter who it is, good or bad, evil, whatever. It's going yeah. to just bring balance. So that that was, I like it just because it was a fun exercise for me to really think about how to truly balance an item. Now, does balance... Okay, in your head, does balance equate to order, or do you include balance as the the balance between chaos and order? Well, currently in the world, balance is the is, it's chaos and order. You have to have a little bit of chaos and a little bit of order that are equal to be balanced. If there's too much chaos, then Libra's champion would subdue the chaos. If there's too much order, then Libra would choose someone to ensue chaos like you see i, I agree with you 100 i really like that and on uh from a lore perspective that is 100 how mordenkainen sees the world as well the, the the planes yep and is consistently trying to keep things balanced whereas primus who runs um the the most lawful of all of the planes he very much says no 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 true balance is when everything is in order a place for everything and everything in its place, right? And so there's an argument about what balance actually means in D&D, which is kind of fun and interesting in the lore itself. Well, Libra in my world is the... So what happened is that the big bad evil destroyed one of the primal gods yeah. and created chaos. And because of that, Libra was born in order to mitigate that. Yeah, okay, that's cool. Um, for my last uh, or my second homebrew item here... Um, I, I'm going to go with something a little bit more mundane. This is something that I handed out to a level nine barbarian, uh, but that they couldn't quite use by themselves. Uh, I have a series of characters, just a little bit of backstory here. I have series of characters in my world, uh, which all rhyme. There's Bernard the Bard, Eric the Cleric, uh, Marion the Barbarian, 
Orlock the Warlock, and Gage the Mage. And they're all high-powered NPCs that run around being essentially the pinnacle of whatever class they represent. Um, Marion the Barbarian, however, she is a fierce warrior who keeps imbuing magic items with her own rage and then forgetting them places. So we've run across quite a few of her items in the world. And my favorite one that I handed out was called, it was a great axe called Marion's Fury. I handed this out to a level eight uh, barbarian who also um, multi-class into sorcerer, which was a hell of a decision to make because those two things don't have great synergy. You can really do one or the other at any given time. And he really wanted the ability to do both. So I created this great axe. And the idea here is that there is in the haft of the axe, there's a place where you can plug a wand into it. And if the wand carries charges of a cantrip, then when you strike with the axe on a success, it triggers whatever the cantrip is as well. And you essentially roll to, to trigger um, the damage doing cantrip when you hit. So the idea was that it had to be able to do damage and you have to be able to um, to get a successful hit on it. And it must be a, a cantrip at its most base level. So the cantrip doesn't scale. The thing about this that was interesting was he was relying on the ranger in the party as the only magic wielder in the party to be able to identify what magic wands were. Um, and they were paying because there was a fighter, this champion fighter, uh, this barbarian, and then a monk and a ranger. So there were no cantrips anywhere there. So he was consistently trying to get NPCs to give him wands or recharge wands. Uh, and this is where they were spending a lot of their money. And he was relying on the ranger to identify which wands were which and how can they help. And so the ranger was desperate to, to learn more and make arcana checks all of the time. Like it really added a lot to the downtime side of things, even though it was a combat mechanic, um, which frankly was a little overpowered sometimes, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't too game breaking. Can I recommend, if you ever use that item again, a hidden Easter egg to put in it just to make your players laugh? Sure. What do you got? Make the only wand that works that doesn't do damage the Wand of Smiles. <laughs> uh, they can get, they get real creepy real fast, though. The rictus <laughs> grin on the corpses. So, um, guys, do you want to, uh, before we, we move into our last topic here, do you want to kind of pitch your um your own instagram or your own contact info brian you've got your own podcast let's hear uh, let's hear a little bit about um what you guys are doing outside of just this one episode uh jeff do you have anything you want to any shout outs or or links you'd like to uh to shout out i mean for me personally it's really just my instagram at the dot zombie dot night k-n-i-g-h-t sometimes i get around to painting usually it's just random dnd shit other than that um personally nothing <laughs> just just nothing you're a busy guy in, in the real world Ugh. um <laughs> yeah i know that sigh uh brian where where can people find you honestly the best place is instagram as well as the bearded nerd media um you'll find me there a lot doing a lot of world building tips um uh, and workshops so to speak I also have, I'm on Twitch, I'm, I have the podcast, and that's pretty much on any major podcasting platform, YouTube, pretty much everywhere. So, but Instagram is probably the best place to find me at. Right on. And you've got a link tree in there as well, don't you? Correct. That's why it's the easiest place yeah. to find me. Right. Okay, cool. So presumably you've gotten this far into this 
behemoth of an episode. So you know how to find the podcast itself, but we don't necessarily know where you found the podcast in the first place. And you might want to find other places to interact with It's a Mimic. Could be the It's a Mimic Instagram page at It's, at it's a Mimic. Could be It's a Mimic on Facebook. You could also decide you want to get involved in ridiculous pedantic conversations with some of us on r slash it's a mimic on reddit you're still wrong about sprod by the way but we'll get into it off off there um if you would like to send random uh you know racy diatribes to adam dan terry or anybody else really you can send emails to info at it's a mimic.com if you have any mailbag questions please please ask more questions uh not you pepperina um (laughs) you can do that at info at it's a mimic.com you can do that in the instagram page facebook page or on r slash it's a mimic thank you very much for pimping our own shit um let's uh let's jump in now to the last topic uh homebrew monsters now this itself is a massive topic uh we spoke kind of at length about um homebrewing monsters uh back in episode 141 but Let's dive into it really quickly. Most people homebrew monsters because they want to give something new. They want to have an experience in an encounter that none of the monsters really seem to provide. Uh, my response to that is dig deeper. It's in there. Nine times out of 10, there is something that just needs a reskinning, a reflavoring, or one extra piece of lore added to them, and you will find what you need. However, there are some times where you need to create Cthulhu. And there's nothing out there that's got a stat block for that. So you can turn to the DMG. There are great rules and quite a lot of them. It gets the deepest dive in the Dungeon Master's Guide out of all of the other homebrewing stuff is how to do monsters and how to balance them appropriately. Keep in mind, challenge ratings are not hard and fast rules and things will hit differently uh, in very unexpected ways based on things like what resources have already been used what environment that you're going to be in. So your homebrew monster may suddenly be too powerful or killed in two rounds before they could get that really cool maneuver off. And you may be disappointed. So homebrewing monsters, I feel is the thing that can be imbalanced and lead to total party kills or imbalances or disappointment or frustration faster than most of the other things can. I will say that the homebrew monster rules in the DMG, um, there are only two pages in my DMG that are flagged for quick reference and it's NPC traits and homebrewing a monster. Those are the only two pages I need a flag on to refer to quickly. Yeah. Other than that, like I also have my, uh, my random magic item tables flagged, but that's really what the DMG is good for. The homebrewing monster rules are useful, but they're not a full Bible. It's just a really great way to get started and a, a cheap, easy way to, to get into it. The more times that you do it, the easier it's going to become and the more you're going to have intuitive responses to how different abilities work in different ways. You need to look at the parts of the monster. Now, first of all, there's the name, which is straightforward. The alignment, which they're now getting rid of um, as of Candlekeep Mysteries and all books since then, because they're leaning away from the alignment system based on um, all the flack Wizards of the Coast got through the Twitter sphere um, last year. So I don't know how I feel about that, but regardless, alignment's not a bad thing to think about, um, at least for tactics for a monster. There's size, of course, creature type, and languages. You can worry about the CR, but I never bother to do that. Um, 
unless I'm actually looking at proper party balance or if I'm handing out experience. Be aware of the creature type and languages that will affect your environment and the social scenarios that this monster may be able to get into. There's hit points. There's both the maximum and the average, and there's a way to calculate that as well. Remember to include the constitution modifier in the hit point calculations. There's also armor class. Saves that uh, that monsters can have resistances, damage immunities, vulnerabilities, condition immunities. Do not ignore the defensive capabilities of a monster. If it has the ability to negate some damage or to not get hit, it is going to be far more difficult to encounter in combat. You have to worry about speed, skills, and senses when it comes to the exploration pillar. These things are important when you're thinking about stealth and sneaking up for ambush. Strength, dexterity, and constitution are all important to think about as far as combat goes, but intelligence, wisdom, and charisma are their own kind of unique um, statistics as far as the tactics that may be used. Do you guys have any insight on when you should pump up one versus another one while building a monster? No? Uh, not that I could quickly put my finger on. I have to say no, because it's going to be dependent upon, it, it's going to be dependent upon ver- on certain variables. So if your game is, I don't know, let's say you have a game that's full with, or filled with veteran DMs that know the monster manual, you know, back and forth. How do you address it there, right? How do you address those type of monsters where it's like, do you, do you increase something to kind of keep those players from metagaming or do you leave it a certain way? So I think short answer, no. Honestly, the thing that I have to say for um, new homebrewers is keep an eye on the fact that wisdom is how the monster interacts with the natural world around it and its surroundings. So things like perception and investigation if it's a good hunter or if it knows when to sit back and let the creatures walk into its spider web, that's where wisdom comes into play. Charisma is about insight. It's going to be able to um, read the players a little bit better and interact with them if they have if the creature has a high enough intelligence in the first place um, <laughs> to actually get language, that's going to help the charisma a lot. There's some synergy there. And then intelligence is the difference between strategy and tactics. The difference is that strategy is a kind of an overall long-term goal, um, which the wisdom will give it, whereas intelligence will give you tactics. What am I doing to back them into the corner or to lead them into a trap, right? So when you're coming up with the, your kind of uh, monster, think about intelligence for um, for out-thinking and out-flanking and out-maneuvering in the moment, but wisdom is going to say, hey, you know what? I know that I'm getting overpowered in round three. I'm going to book it. If you want a, um, a monster that feels real, that will retreat, it should have a decent wisdom. Uh, wisdom of one or two, those creatures will just keep attacking until they're dead. So thinking about that a little bit, um, if you're building a monster or an NPC stat block and you're not using an, exist- an existing stat block as a foundation to start from, Yep. It almost feels better and more natural for me to decide the type of behavior that this creature will possess first and then reverse engineer the intelligence, wisdom, and charisma scores based on is this a strategic hunter? Is this thing like I would try to figure those parts out first and then make the ability scores fit 
that might be easier when you're not as experienced at this than saying, I want it to be this intelligence, this wisdom, and this charisma, and then figure out what that means. It, that might be easier later on. I think you're absolutely right. I'm under the impression that everybody is at this point in the episode, every, everyone is uh, under the impression that we are addressing the idea of why we're building it and we're building the lore first. Because once you build the lore, a lot of the stuff will just kind of fit in nicely. You may have to, um, to fiddle with it a little bit to get to the right CR level, reduce the speed to increase the dark vision or vice versa. But for the most part, if you know why you are creating this creature and you know why it is where it is, and you know why the characters are encountering it now, a lot of the stuff will just sort itself out as it goes. True. This is all. This is also um, important when it comes down to things like building um, your stat blocks. But I honestly believe the stat blocks are only about a third of the issue. Um, all of the stuff around the stat blocks, before you get down to the actions, before you get down to the features or the traits, all of that stuff, languages, uh, resistances, skills, speed, um, all of that is going to inform you so much more about what everything is going to come afterwards. That's your foundation, your building block. So the stats, a lot of people just say, oh, it's got a strength of 18 because it's strong and they never think about it, but that's really a fraction of the homebrew process. One of the things that a lot of people like to do is hand out a specific item to a homebrew monster as well. Um, this is danger pants, if I can be honest, because I mean, you look at how strong Orcus is with that wand and then you take that wand away and how strong Orcus is without it and it drops him significantly in power. That's true of the Flind with their whip as well. As a matter of fact, a lot of the creatures out there are dangerous because they carry weapons. So think about the items you're going to give and if you're going to give them something particularly powerful, you have to be prepared for the good guys for the party to pick that item up afterwards when they loot the corpse. I made that mistake very early in my very first campaign um, and had my player characters straight up steal powerful magic staff away from the big, uh, big bad evil guy in an early encounter and then had to figure out what the fuck that meant for the rest of my campaign. <laughs> oh, rough. Whoops. Yeah. So the, uh, the next thing to look at are the different traits that are out there. Now, there's a long list of different traits and abilities and features um, that are available. Th these are things like auras, um, magical resistances, things like that. You can flip through the monster manual to find something that is similar to what you're looking for. You can also try to find lists of, uh, of monster traits or whatnot online. That stuff does exist. There are kind of tools out there for it. But remember, the more of these features you add, the more dangerous this becomes because you will end up with synergies, the ability to do different things uh, that you might not understand uh, when you're building it. And then when you see it in action, when you know that, hey, you can stun three people or 1d4 players every round. You're like, oh, okay, that's an average of two. No, man, you rolled a four, three rounds in a row. This is a total party kill, right? And you didn't see that coming. I try not to rely on anything dice related in this section, just because this is where things go absolutely crazy. Also, to stack on that, if you're trait stacking on, an, on a monster or an NPC that you're building, and it's not a creature you're intending to be a major encounter, you can very quickly run into a situation where you just made this monster way more confusing for yourself to run in combat. Yep. You can and easily make yourself forget or trip over shit you put in because it sounded cool, 
And now you keep forgetting to do the cool thing because you put too many things on the stat block. That's that's a really solid point. And frankly, you've also made it way more dangerous. You look at, okay, when you think of the creatures that are overpowered, you're thinking about, like for their CR, you're thinking about the Spectre and you're thinking about the um, the Intellect Devourer and Banshees. the Rust Monster. Yeah, these things, it's their traits that make them so deadly, right? Sure, it's hard-baked into the actions as well, but it's the traits that give them that that foundation to make them as scary as they are. Then, of course, there's spellcasting. Spellcasting is, I mean, where do you even start with this? I love giving, giving monsters the ability to cast spells, especially, like, they have to have an intelligence of five or higher in order to do this. Otherwise, it's just an ability they can mimic a spell um like they can turn invisible but they don't have invisibility and spell slots watch your spell slots watch your levels and, and try to have it make sense um there is a general mentality behind building uh, spell casting lists and uh honestly you have to think about theme if you sit there and say hey you know what i want them to be able to cast disintegrate four times Right, you can either say that they can do that up to four times per day or recharges on a five, six, or whatever, make it an, an action, or you can just put it on the spell casting list, but now you have to flesh out all the other spells underneath it. And what other spells will they have? That's a lot of work that you're probably never going to deal with all of the rest of these. So, why give yourself that extra headache? One of the nice things, though, is there are a lot of spell casting um, NPCs, there are a lot of them in there. And if you're struggling to figure out where to put, like you're dead set on, I want this car- this NPC to be to have cleric magic casting ability. There are a lot of NPC stat blocks out there that have spell casting traits that will that can help you learn what spellcaster level equates to what CR, uh, so you can yes. get a handle on not accidentally making your spellcaster NPC way more or less powerful than you intended because you picked the wrong level of spellcasting ability for the challenge rating. One of the really interesting things that you can do as well is if you look in, I want to say it's Volos, but don't quote me on that. In the back of one of the monster books, there is um, a warlock of the Great Old One, a warlock of the Fiend, and a warlock of the Archfey. They all have different spell uh, spellcasting lists, and it makes them all radically different CRs. It's something to keep an eye on. It's an interesting way to look at how you can build warlocks differently. I literally just used one of those stat blocks last night to build a, a homebrew NPC stat block. Oh, there you go. Um, the one thing that I will say, though, is that there are a lot of creatures out there that have the ability to summon, especially demons and devils and whatnot can summon others. Um, be careful with this. Do not rely on summoning uh, because you are fucking with the action economy. And that is a whole other side of imbalance that you may not be prepared to handle. So I would keep summoning to to a minimum. Uh, other than that, we get down to the actions. In most actions, you have the general idea of... Uh, an attack which is to hit versus a a save are you going to force someone else to roll dice or are you going to roll dice against their ac this is something i rely on a lot i love forcing my players to roll saves instead of me trying to hit them just because it makes them roll more dice and it keeps them happier there's also reach or range um, to think about can you hit the things are they within range of you to be able to attack them Uh, the number of targets that you can hit the more targets you choose to hit with an attack the deadlier you're going to become damage and damage types we talked about this earlier but if you are 
stacking on special homebrew abilities and attacks that focus on force damage or thunder damage. You guys are going to get their asses whooped. But I bet most of them have got some way to shrug off bludgeoning by level 12, non-magical bludgeoning. But your homebrew orc that only does psychic damage, not as cool as you think it is. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, and then finally, there are the additional effects. The moment that you start adding these condition effects, like, uh, and now you're poisoned, or, and now you are uh, confused. Uh, this also casts this spell on anybody that gets, like, you are complicating things, and it is suddenly be going to become far deadlier. The moment that it does more than just damage, this attack is, A, going to be the thing that your enemy, your monster uses most often because it's the most effective tactic, but B, it is going to be the most deadly. You have to worry about reactions, uh, because of course you do. There are also legendary actions that you may have to think about. There are layers uh, and the layer actions within them, as well as regional effects for some. There are a lot of different ideas about, um, or there's a lot of different aspects when it comes to creating one of these uh, one of these homebrew monsters. And again, if you're not going to put an hour into it, you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. There's a lot to think about. And I really do say, even if you are not a layer, you're not legendary, so you don't have a layer, you still are going to use your environment to your benefit. And I don't need to homebrew a new type of goblin if I just give it a wand, right? Or like, change a weapon. Exactly. And I do that a lot. I change weapons all the time. And we have this handy table in the PHP, which says which weapons to use when. Yep. So um, it tells us how much damage they do and what kind of damage. And that's something that I rely on quite heavily. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I kind of maybe had an episode on action economy on my own podcast. Um, <laughs> go check it out. Yeah, go check it out. Because I talk about this where even you don't. You don't necessarily have to be the big bad evil person to have a layer versus using the environment against the players to kind of even out and balance that action economy, right? Sometimes just homebrewing something means, hey, the Hobgoblin, you can even take this. You can even take some from previous editions. The Hobgoblin Warlord is going to use their might or something to call upon minions, well, it's not necessarily a layer action, but they're using their power and their command to do something. So you can even add, you can you can alter those things in order to create something better, which is at the heart of it, homebrewing. Oh, absolutely, I hundred percent agree. Um, I've got some questions. Let's uh, let's grab our dice and roll one more time. All right, eighteen. I got a ten. Brian, you got a nineteen, so you're going first. A nineteen. Um, all right. So what would be, I'm trying to think what would be the best thing to specify for folks who are wanting to homebrew monsters? Yeah. What's, what's that insider tip? Honestly, it's, it, it's going to be, I'm going to reiterate the same thing I said, but change the fact that when you're homebrewing a monster, think about your world and think about the lore that you have already set or told, right? You don't want to say, oh, this, I've created this monster that does this, 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 and that. When five sessions ago, that never came, that was never in existence, right? The abilities or traits of that monster. So you want to kind of do a little bit of your homework and say, okay, what's going on in my world where this would be allowed, or this would be, 
you know, new, right? You know, let's give a great example. It would be really weird to create a monster that looks like like that looks like something from Aliens versus Predators when you're playing in a Game of Thrones type of environment. Yeah, you you got to fit your surroundings, right? Environment is so important. Yep. And even look, I will say this. I run my homebrew world is full of portals where things are dropping in from all over the multiverse. So they're they're like, why is this here? And my answer to that is investigate and find out. But I have a reason. It does make sense. If it's out of place, it's out of place for a reason. And 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 that's a really good point because it leads to my second. If you want to create a monster or homebrew a monster that's in existence, go ahead and use um, environmental evolution, right? Maybe there's a dragon that has made its home in the desert. Okay, make a homebrew desert dragon that burrows in the sand. Nothing wrong with that. It's You're still kind of taking from the basis of what a dragon is, but now just applying a different environment where then the players and the characters can say, whoa, this is weird. This is different. Well, a dragon from a long time ago came and adapted to its environment. So those are my two tips. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. And honestly, if you go back into previous editions, you will find that dragons did evolve exactly that way. So like there's precedence for that already in D&D. True. Jeff, you're going second with an 18. How does that feel? It feels great. So (laughs) to piggyback and drill down a little bit more into that, because Brian's eating my lunch a little bit here. Um, I've kept aquarium fish for 20 years. I've been really nerdy about it for a long time. And I'm sure Adam can uh, relate to what I'm, you know, even further going to push into based on his, uh, we'll say the maintenance of his herps over his life. But yeah, think about the ecosystem. Think about how does this animal hunt? What does it eat? What eats it? How does the environment that it lives in change its natural defenses or instincts? In the case of a uh, homebrew humanoid, how does this person fit into the hierarchy of the other humanoids they're found with? What niche do they fill that's different than other stat blocks found around them? What function do they serve within the ecosystem they operate in? Or what role do they fulfill? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna piggyback on that. It's a um, double piggyback. It's a double piggyback. Brian, you're carrying both of us now. Um, <laughs> the... When it comes down to, okay, random tables aside, because it's always fun to roll in a random encounter table. Um, but beside that, why are these monsters here now? Why does this enemy, it's not just why does it exist. It's not just what are they doing in this um, in this environment. Why are they interacting with the party now? And why are they interacting in this way? You have to really think about the motivations. Everything has a motivation. Even a disembodied ghost has a motivation. The sure. motivation may be weird or alien. I have no idea what's going on inside a beholder's head. And I don't think I want to. However, they have their own motivations. Why are things attacking during the day? I don't understand this. If they have dark vision, they will hunt at night. The end. If I end up rolling a, a displacer beast in the middle of a desert at noon and on my random encounter table, they're going to come across an injured one because there's no reason that they would encounter one. It, it would know not to attack these guys out in the middle of the, the open air 
in the middle of the day. Like it, it just knows better. Or Maybe if you the, want to get real weird, it's rabid. Oh yeah. Like you can do that. <laughs> it's been driven insane, but why see, I would say, why is it rabid? What magical shit happened to it or what bit it that made it rabid or what tainted meat did it eat? And where is that meat now? Right? Like you there's always a reason why. So when I'm coming up with these really cool homebrew things, I want the displacer beast that does poison damage and will give levels of exhaustion. Yeah, it's rabid, but why? What's around the corner? Oh, it has been feasting on dead purple worm for the last three months because that purple worm is huge, but it's also rotting now. And what else is around there? And who killed the purple worm? Feasting right? on like, dead purple worms, the name of my sex tape. <laughs> <laughs> delicious so, <laughs> so um when it comes to these the idea of homebrewing monsters it's more than just the stat block right mm-hmm. you really do need to think and we all hit that know why and don't just think about why but why here and why now because if you understand that then the tactics will kind of write themselves and it's not until i understand that when i start to write the stat block because it's the tactics that I want to represent with the actions and the traits. Do you have any other tips or warnings, uh, Brian, about homebrewing monsters? Honestly, my only warning would be to really, really, really don't like really just avoid looking solely at the stat block. Because if you only look at the stat block and you don't consider the environment and the things that I previously said, the things that we all previously said, you're going to have a monster that's all bark and no bite. Because from a player perspective, yeah, you might have a really cool monster. But then if it doesn't make sense from the environment, you just made your players step out. And now you think, oh, this is a game. It's almost like when you see a glitch in a video game, it's like, oh, Yep, this is a video game. Any form of immersion has just left. So don't focus on just the stat block. Don't focus on just that. Really try to take a holistic approach to it. I I agree with you 100%. Um, I had a couple of years ago, I had two players that were uh, moving. They were a couple and they were leaving the country. And so we knew that it was going to be their last session coming up. And so everyone was kind of like bummed out and there's, big hugs and uh, we're gonna let you get this kill because i mean the characters don't know it but the players know that you're not going to be here next week right and so there was this kind of attitude about it and i decided that hey you know what it is not the time for immersion this is the players going through something so i wanted the players to to feel something different so i let them fight actual cannibal shia labeouf hmm. um because I found that stat block online. Someone at home brewed that and it was really fun and everybody laughed and it like, we, we had a blast with it, but it was so world breaking that it taught me a lesson. I thought it was this fun, neat, extra special thing to do at the end of a long running campaign to, to kind of get everybody on the same page, laughing together and working together. And it was, it was just a blast. However, I would never do that in the middle of curse of Strahd or in out of the abyss right? Actual Cannibal Shia LaBeouf is not going to appear in my super serious um, Candlekeep Mysteries anthology, right? Like, it's just, it's totally not right. You should think about tone and theme. I think you're 100% correct. Do not break immersion. And if you really want to throw something for fun that's silly, ridiculous, and completely mismatching in tone, discuss with the group ahead of time, 
hey, I'm going to do some wacky shit. Let's just pretend this is a shared dream sequence. And everyone at the end is going to wake up and go, huh, that was weird. So that it can just be fun and low stakes, but not affect the actual like emotional progression of the characters after. Yeah. And honestly, the one thing that I will say, you said low stakes. I'm going to say this too. Remember when you were designing your monsters? Yes, you want to make Godzilla. That is badass and cool. Hey, I want to make a Batman NPC. Do you have any idea how many special traits and features that motherfucker is going to get? There are so many things that Batman can do just because, right? I I am I want to build these, but they will be so powerful that they're going to raffle stuff. There's no reason you should ever be able to fight Godzilla in D&D. Not real Godzilla. That's, that's nuts. You should never be able to fight Cthulhu in real D&D. I mean... People will argue with me on that, but for your average party, especially, you know, your, your adventuring party, before you become saviors of the plane, you, you are going to go up against threats that are kind of at your station in life. When you end up building these massive, awesome homebrew monsters, do not make them too powerful. Remember, your job as a dungeon master is to lose in the most entertaining and rewarding way possible. Keep that in mind when you are building your homebrew monsters. So, do you guys have a, a one homebrew monster that you are really excited about uh, showcasing? I personally do not. I just, like I said, I, I my homebrew monsters can range from just a, a, a small environmental effect to really a completely different creature that... To really call out one, at least me, and maybe this is just, I'm judging myself too harshly. I don't think it's necessarily special. As long, I'll say this, the ones that are special are the ones that my players absolutely love. Like I had a spider that I ran last Tuesday, actually, as of time of recording. And it just had this ability to bamf like a blink dog. And it only could, it could only do it once. Like once every 10 minutes, just bam, just something really quick. But it really made my players go, whoa, what's that? That's really cool. We have to mitigate this and we have to really clamp it down. And I only the only reason there was a bam was because this spider was like attached to the fey. That's all. That's the only reason I gave it because I was just like, well, it's attached to the fey because it's in like an elven forest and, you know, one thing led to the other because of the lore and boom, there you go. So that's really the only thing, but that that's really the only thing I would share showcase just because it's the most recent thing. Honestly, it doesn't take much, does it? Just a, a simple twist on a familiar kind of monster is enough to have people take notice. Everyone loves magic items and, and we remember NPCs that can do fun and crazy things. And of course the big bad evil guys have their own special rules. When it comes to just your average monster, making the wolf orange could be enough to have people raise their eyebrows and go, what the fuck's going on with the orange wolf? And I remember that for the next six months, right? True. Jeff, do you have anything? Any you'd like to showcase? I'm just going to call back to an earlier episode of the podcast, which I looked up real quick as episode 103, uh, Mob Mentalities, the the first, I think it was the first Goblinoid Hosts one. Yep, yep. Which I actually collaboratively with you, built out stat blocks for blank spaces left in the books for the hobgoblins the bugbear bulwark murderer and thug which were really fun to put together relatively simple relatively low cr but they took like hanging loose ends from the i forget is that volos i think it's from 
just like a hanging loose end where they said these are things that exist and then didn't give them to you. And I had a really great time back and forth on Discord with you just putting together these loose ends that wizards just kind of left hanging. Yeah, the goblinoids particularly are bad for that. Um, though, I mean, how many different kinds of hobgoblins are listed? They give you seven ranks, but then like one kind of hobgoblin. Right. Right. Like it's fleshing those ranks out is, and, and it's also fun to do because you have a starting um like an, a point of origin right right somewhere I, to build off of i really enjoy the simpler homebrew monsters over like yeah it's fun to build a bag you know big bad whatever i find it simple enjoyment and practice from just finding holes in the existing list of stat blocks for certain categories of things and figuring out what would fit there yeah they don't have to be super complicated to be fun uh i agree and as a matter of fact i'm gonna circle back to what um what you guys were talking about a couple minutes ago my showcase for a monster is a monster without a stat block i used this uh last sunday uh for my sunday campaign my guys are all experienced uh D players at this point and they all have i mean dan and dave alone have like 40 years of experience between the two of them so when they were level two they just leveled up um before the session when they were level two and running through the desert and a purple worm was popping up out of the ground uh they knew that this was not a combat encounter this is a monster yes but this was an environmental hazard and they needed to get to safety like tremors right that was the right. idea is get out of this danger zone and get to safety because you will not be able to kill this purple worm so i hope i i they were running through the desert there were 41 of them because they had just rescued a bunch of npcs from um some slavers and so they were running through and all of those feet on the ground were making a hell of a noise and so they ended up in a field of shriekers which if you guys are familiar shriekers those are little mushrooms that if you disturb them they make a shit ton of noise um and so they were in a field of them and they were trying to tiptoe through slowly and they ended up through you know not their own fault they triggered the shriekers and the purple worms started to come up if you look at the purple worm stats, it's boring. Like, yeah, they're they're one hit kills, but they don't move very fast. And they're, I mean, all of my guys will be sprinting. And if the purple worm attacks, then it or the purple moon, uh, if the purple worm double moves, it doesn't attack, and it's too slow to really do what it needs to do. So I just home brewed the uh, elder purple worm, and this thing moves at a ridiculous rate, and it's three times the size. This thing has got a mouth that's fifteen feet wide, and just like it's scary it's still one hit kills doesn't matter i got the point across but we rolled initiative to see who's running when and where and that was more rewarding and more um more fun more memorable for the players than if i had sat there and worried about okay so the exact experience that you'll be able to get from this is or the uh, the languages that a purple worm might have come across previously. What's its actual intelligence level? No, screw that. I don't give a shit. I don't care what this thing's dex is. The strength is, motherfucker, it hit you, right? Like it blew up out of the ground and it eats. If it hits, it eats. Run. And so it was a puzzle. More people got to start thinking about these monsters as threats instead of combat, right? Think about it as a puzzle and you may not have to actually build the stat block or 
you can just change it a little bit and have a goblin that can walk on ceilings. And that's a whole new kind of puzzle and encounter, right? Now you got to fight a goblin with the crossbow that's loading it upside down on a ceiling. How are you going to reach it, barbarian and monk? All right. Suddenly, I want to throw at my players a goblin with slippers of spider climbing, a wand of magic missile, and a wand of shield. And a cod piece of plus three to charisma. You got it. Done. <laughs> Running across the ceiling, shooting magic missiles, and shielding every arrow thrown at it. That's infuriating but so much fun <laughs> do you guys have any final thoughts about homebrewing these specifics now that we've uh, now that we've gone through them all honestly again have fun with it if you're not having fun with it then it's not going to be worth it it's not going to worth it's not going to be worth you putting the time into it so just have fun with it take it easy and have fun that is just a great piece of advice for all things dnd very true jeff any final thoughts i can't yeah, my brain just short-circuited there for a second. <laughs> you were distracted by that cod piece? Is that what it was? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Um, pretty much, uh, man, I'm just fried. It's easy for this stuff to feel intimidating, particularly when people like us put a lot of emphasis on do the research, do the reading, spend the time. You don't have to jump into plus three great axes of the fucking Tarrasque. You don't have to jump into writing a class. You can start with very simple things. You can start with turning a class feature into a simple magic item, turning a scroll into a single-use magic item, which I know Adam's mentioned in previous episodes before. Start with simple stuff just to have fun with it, just to get your feet wet and try stuff. Don't worry about... Some of my favorite things to homebrew are low-level and simple because I can just throw them at my parties and not really be super worried about balance if it's simple. And like and, not overpowered in any way, shape or form, just to give them something fun to play with. And honestly, that is exactly what I do. The majority of the items that I hand out are a, a little a little toy stool that will turn into a real stool if you put it on the ground and say the magic word. And then you can sit whenever you want. Dan will always remember that. That was his favorite item he's ever gotten because he was playing an elderly old dragonborn. Terry's favorite item that he ever got was a stone hawk that if he said the magic word, it would turn into a real hawk and it would fly around for like five minutes. It was his pet and he loved it. And I do that shit all the time. This is not breaking the game by any means, but it's so much flavor. And I guess that's the point that we've been kind of circling over and over again. Flavor and substance is more important than stats and style. I think you just undermined the entire craft beer industry. <laughs> well, the... what's that? You want to make a new craft beer? Add more hops. It has all the hops. Add more anyway. This is a plus two IPA. Wait, shit. Double IPAs are already a thing. <laughs> plus three IPA. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's it for this discussion on home brewing. Get it? Home brewing. I... Ah, anyway. Fuck. We've got a million more ideas and arguments about dungeon mastering, so subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we're going to be returning to our conversation on dragons, where we're going to take a look at some of the famous dragons in 5th edition. And if you would like to support It's a Mimic podcast, they have a donation button on their website, which is www.itsamimic.com, as well as a store where you can get some awesome merch. They just like um, a lot of folks in the community, we rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass on the word to everyone you know and let them know that they're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcasting apps. 
Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. All right, create a new kind of mimic. What does it do and how does it hide? Let's uh, grab our dice and roll initiative. Natural 20. Of course you did. I got a 17. All right, Jeff, what, what kind of mimic? Boot mimics. They look like a pair of fancy boots. They're always found in pairs. Once they are put on, they attach themselves firmly and they don't give up easily. If they're allowed by the wearer, they form a symbiotic relationship and can grant advantage on skill checks and saving throws made to keep your footing, but they feed off of foot sweat and occasionally you can feel them sucking on your toes. Mm. That's disgusting. That is 10 different kinds of disgusting. (laughs) I love it. I also like the fact that they would probably hinder your movement somehow as well. In order to fight them, you've got to be prone. I think so, yeah. Stab your own feet. Yeah, or you're laying on your back trying to pull them off. I like that. Brian, what's yours? Well, mine would be, it's really weird. It would be food related. It's like a cheese mimic. Why? Because because when it goes in, when you eat it, quote unquote, when you think you eat it, and it goes in, it starts feeding on your stomach acid and all that other stuff. And it just basically uses you as a host to have, to create more uh, mimics and whatnot. So it's more of like a parasite mimic. Again, I've been doing a lot of goth horror lately, so that might be a little so biased. You, took, you guys took it to like to the nth degree. You went in opposite directions too. I like that. You went weird. Yeah. I, uh, I was just going to say a ladder mimic or a rope mimic. I want you to fight this thing when you are dangling off the side of a cliff. I want you 30 feet up in the air and having to hold on. Now, imagine all three of these in effect at the same time. The boot mimic's trying to hold on to the ladder that's trying to throw mm-hmm. you off while the well, cheese mimic is eating mimics. <laughs> <laughs> the cheese mimic is eating you from the inside out, not only giving you really bad stomach aches, but, you know, trying to create uh, something in your body. Con save every round or lose your bonus action. Ooh, yeah, that would suck. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye.